sneak out this glass of bourbon and we'll go. We were once so close to heaven. Peter came out and gave us medals, declaring us the nicest of the day. Welcome to episode two of the Consider the Ray Gun podcast, in which I, Daniel Harper, am joined by a guest to talk about a book that has some kind of vague connection to science fiction or fantasy. I guess there was some question about exactly what this podcast is supposed to be after episode one, so there it is. Basically, I'm inviting people I know to come on with a book they want to talk about, and, well, we talk about it. I'm always looking for suggestions for good books to read, and frankly, I'd love to get a little diversity in both authors and guests, as it's mostly straight white guys so far. So if you're listening and have ideas for co-hosts or texts, feel free to contact. I promise I don't bite. Anyway, this time I'm joined by my friend Kit Power in discussing a book, nay, a trilogy of books that meant a lot to him as a child, The Tripods Trilogy by John Christopher. These are composed of the White Mountains, the City of Lead and Gold, and the Pool of Fire. They take place in a world in which humanity has been reduced to a sort of faux medieval level of technology by invading aliens called the Masters, who run around in giant mechanical conveyances called the Tripods for reasons that should be fairly obvious. They have imposed a sort of willing slavery on the populace by means of metal caps that start a puberty, which enforce a kind of loving subservience to the aliens and all who wear them. The first book introduces us to the world and our protagonist, Will, who is soon to be capped, but when he is told of the true nature of the capping by a vagrant named Ozymandias, who is also an agent of a secret society of the uncapped, he flees his small village, accompanied somewhat against his will by a pseudo-antagonist named Henry, and later by a budding boy genius from France named Jean-Paul. The trio wandered through much of Europe in search of the White Mountains, located somewhere in northern Germany, and perhaps the most significant occurrence during the book is a secret in which Will, starving and feverish, is first nursed back to health by a wealthy family and then offered a place in their household. He has a crush on the gorgeous Eloise, who is soon to be kept herself, but flees the manor when he discovers that Eloise will be immediately taken to one of the master's great cities after her capping. In the second book, Will, John Paul, and the new friend Fritz lead the Sanctuary of the Resistance in the White Mountains in an attempt to infiltrate one of the alien cities. They are to do so by means of winning in the games, an athletic contest whose winners will be taken by the tripods as servants. Will and Fritz win their events and are taken in, but John Paul has a crisis of faith and fails at his event. Once inside the city, where an oppressive artificial gravity and swamp-like conditions replicate the conditions of the Master's homeworld, Fritz and Will become slaves to individual Masters. Will's master is something of a liberal reformer, but Francis is a nasty piece of work, torturing his slave for the slightest infraction and beating him nearly to death on a regular basis. The book ends with Will's escape from the city, where he finds John Paul monitoring the city from outside. Along the way, Will has discovered that the masters will not will only have need of human slaves for another four years, at which time a colonization fleet will arrive to terraform the planet to be more pleasing to the masters. In the third book, Will and Fritz, who it is real, manage to escape the city for himself, become traveling merchants who are secretly evangelists for the resistance. They travel around much of Europe and other areas surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, and eventually manage to capture a master, question it for information, and discover that it has an extreme metabolic reaction to ethanol. And this information becomes vital as a small group that must infiltrate each of the three cities around the Earth, build a distillation apparatus uh, from what they find there, and produce alcohol to add to the city's water supply, after which they must breach the city's walls and allow Earth's atmosphere in, which is poisonous to the masters. The group is successful, although the raid on one of the other two cities is not, and this eventually leads to a literal assault on the, by a helium balloon. The book ends with a political summit of sorts among the members of the human resistance, who despite having defeated the alien masters, must now contend with the nastiness of human politics. 
I think that's enough to orient yourself in the discussion that follows. We bounced around a lot in this podcast, and from book to book, and following themes and ideas more than a straightforward structure. It was a fun conversation. We talked a lot about what we were able to glean from John Christopher's politics, the effectiveness of an unreliable and even dickish protagonist, the history of the American slave trade, and possible deeper meanings in the series. I'd recommend checking out the books if you have an interest in young adult fiction and cozy apocalypses, as they're fairly quick and painless and definitely worth a look if you uh, want to get everything possible out of this discussion. You can find more of Kit Power on Twitter at Kit Gonzo, and he has a podcast called Ro- Watching Robocop with Kit Power, of which I was the second ever guest. Don't let that dissuade you, though. It's a great show. And with that, I'll just fade us into the conversation already in progress. Time won't find the loss. It'll sweep up our skeleton bones. So take the wheel and I will take the path. I'm kind of doing this, uh, basically just want to do these as casual conversations. Um, so I know you've got some stuff you want to talk about and we'll just cool. kind of go through stuff and, uh, just kind of play it by ear. It lasts as long as it lasts. And, um, I don't, you know, I'm going to do these, like, basically I'm just going to put in a piece of music and then introduce you along with, you know, you know, the kind of a summary of the book and the conversation and then we'll just fade into the conversation. So. Cool. So I won't do like a, a straight up intro and all that kind of thing. It's just going to be. Oh, you'll, you'll post record all that and uh, yeah, yeah. you and me will just start talking. Yeah. In fact, we've already started talking. So. <laughs> that's yeah. But we're, we're talking about talking. So that that's clearly right, right. meta in some important way. Right, Does that right. mean we're postmodern? We're, we're pretty postmodern. Yeah. yeah I mean, Excellent. It's stuff in the episode, of course, you know, which I've always wanted not, to be postmodern. Well, no, we're being postmodern. It doesn't matter if it's in the episode or not. We're being postmodern. <laughs> and I, I get to say I've been postmodern. So that's. Yep. Achievement unlocks, really. What else do you need to know? Yeah, well, you know, I'd imagine as a writer, it's kind of like one of the like goals is to eventually like graduate to postmodernism because isn't that the final <laughs> form of all writing is postmodernism? Yeah, you're uh, you're inviting me into some choppy waters there, so I, I I will not rise to the bait. <laughs> <laughs> I'll settle for telling a story anybody wants to read at this point. That's <laughs> I'll fair. leave the labelings for the people. So, have you been? I've been all right, man. Uh, yeah, I've been all right. It's been uh, it's been an exhausting couple of weeks, as you know. I spent most of the week before this one with a neck injury, which uh, they gave me some some very groovy muscle relaxants for, which meant that you know I had um I had a very chilled out time, but it meant I got back to work this week, and a week's worth of work was waiting for me. <laughs> so uh, you know. I, uh, this week I've been mainly chasing my own goddamn tail, trying to get caught up with all the shit that didn't get done last week because I wasn't there because I wasn't feeling well. So, uh, busy. <laughs> but you know, other than that, okay. How and about yet you? you? And yet you found time to reread some books today or this week or recently. Oh, I don't know. yeah. Well, no, I actually reread this a couple of weeks ago. Um, so yeah, the, I, I mean, as you know, it's a quick read. So no, I dug, I dug tripods out, uh, fairly soon after I knew we'd be talking about it. So I reread it. I finished free reading it, yeah, last week, I think. Um, so, oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I got my way through it. Um, in fact, I've just started, tonight is the third night of reading it to my daughter. Uh, it's become her new bedtime book. So, so, well, uh, so, so how that's, how's that going? Or, or describe that, I think, you know, for, uh, yeah. Well, okay. So, I mean, we, we just finished Prince Caspian, which, um, uh, uh, my, my mum started reading to her because my mum's a big C.S. Lewis fan. So I had to finish it. And 
she loves it, but me, I goddamn C.S. Lewis. I mean, when I was a kid, I was fine with it, but reading it now, I'm just, I'm just appalled by so much of it. You know, the, the would you believe of... I never read the uh, the Narnia series? I, I only uh, read his theology. So, uh... yeah, I, I got, I think I got three chapters into mere Christianity before I said, if this is the best you guys have got, then I'm, I'm not missing out on much, and I chucked it across the room. Um, but no, I, I did read the Narnia books as a kid. The thing for me that's incredible about them is the glamorization, the, the, the casual glamorization of war, uh, and the, the, the notion of the, the just war and the kind of, you know, good versus evil. And it, you know, it's really, uh, just bizarre stuff to read. Anyway, so yeah, so we finished that. Um, and I'd read the tripods, so, so I decided to read the tripods too. The only problem with that is, and I guess, you know, this is something that you and I will be talking about at some point this evening is, um, there basically aren't any female characters in the tripods of, of any kind of substance whatsoever. I, um, I mean, there's, there's Eloise. Uh, there's, well, there's she, Will's, think... there's Will's mum for about three yeah. pages. Yep. And as you mentioned, there's Eloise, who is, who, who has, uh, who has her problems. <laughs> I think we'll get to that. I mean, like, you know, it says if you want to use the phrases objectification and fridging, I think you couldn't pick uh, a better textbook example. In fact, given when this was written, is this the early example of a fridging? Because it's, you know, when you get to book two. Anyway, we'll get to that. So when I talked to to my daughter about this, I said to her, look, I'd like to read you this story. I think it's fun. However, there aren't any girls in it, and I think that's a bit naff. So how would you feel about it if I changed the main lead character to being a girl? And I won't change anything else. But you can pick her name, and we'll call her that instead of it being a boy called Will. It'll be a girl called whatever you choose to call her, and the rest of the story will be the same. And she said, yeah, that sounds like fun. So we're doing that. So her version of the tripods has uh, Sarah instead of Will, and everything else is unchanged. And as I say, we're, we're halfway through um, Ozymandias. We get through about half a chapter a night, so we're halfway through. My name is Ozymandias at the moment. Yeah, she's just arranged to meet Ozymandias at the, um, at the hideout. So uh, she's just about to discover that the the world is not as it seems, and capping may not be a wonderful thing after all. So, uh, and so far it's going well. She seems Scarlet seems really caught up with it. She's really enjoying it. So that's great. That, that's awesome. Yeah. No, I I love I love the uh, so, so uh, I get I guess for me, and this is probably where all these episodes are going to start because it's basically invite someone on to talk about a book they choose, and I guess I just yeah. need to kind of come back and go, why when I kind of told you about this project. Did you, like, you immediately went to this? You know, what was okay. it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, great. I mean, I, I mean, of, of all the, of all the books that exist, of all the other things we could talk about, and he said, well, there's this young adult series that, like, I, I really want to talk about. And I, I've never heard of this series. Like, literally, I had no context for this. Like, I oh, had okay. never heard of it. And so you said, well, I want to do the tripods. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. And so we're doing the tripods. Well, I mean, the, the obvious reason is I read it as a kid. I read it at the age of about sort of, you know, I mean, looking at the age of my paperback, probably nine or ten, somewhere around there. So, you know, pretty, pretty much the ideal age for it. And I remember really enjoying it. And I remember it's one that I reread either in my late teens or early twenties and still enjoyed. I still enjoyed it on a story level. So I had a reasonable expectation that it would stand up in some way and would therefore be worth revisiting. It does have a kind of vague Doctor Who connection in that 
the their BBC television the year after Doctor Who was cancelled did a televised version of Tripods and it ran in the Doctor Who slot. Uh, and it was seen very much as the BBC attempting to do something in the Doctor Who vein that wasn't Doctor Who. So it was BBC doing sci-fi. It's the the TV show. I've I watched the first. I've actually bought the DVD and never rewatched it. I watched it at the time as a kid and I haven't rewatched it. I watched the first couple of episodes. I think it's mainly notable for the fact that Patrick Stewart turns up in it as oh, the uh, <laughs> who is Patrick yeah. Stewart? He's 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 in it for one episode. He's the sea captain who takes them across to France. Oh, nice. So he, in yeah, the, yeah. First, so it's a, it's a very book. small part, but he's yeah, great. Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. Well, of shoot, course it's. I mean, yeah. it's, it's John Picard. Like, of course he, of course yeah, he's great. Yeah, yeah. Of course he's good. Uh, so that's fun. And they did apparently do the set. They did shoot the second book, The City of Lead and Gold, but it was it, it did so badly that the third was never shot, so they never finished it. And I never saw the second. I only watched the first series. So so it had the vague Doctor Who connection, which I, I thought might be interesting. And but the other thing was, it just felt like I mean, you you wanted to. When you said consider the Raygun and you were talking about it being science fiction, this for me was outside of Doctor Who, probably one of my earliest brushes with science fiction. Um, the other book that we could have been talking about tonight, and I hope we will be talking about in a future podcast, is Ender's Game, which I read around a similar age. And funnily enough, actually it had a similar impact on me, although there are differences in the stories, there are some remarkable similarities, I think. I mean, and I mean that just beyond just the very obvious kind of Joseph Campbell stuff, which is clearly the template for both stories. But even beyond that, I think there's some very interesting stuff happening, particularly about, you know, the relationship between youth and age, uh, and wisdom and experience and all that kind of stuff. Uh, anyway. So yeah, those, those were all the reasons. It was, it was, it was partly out of a, a hope that it would be, it would stand up and it would still be good and a memory that it was good and a desire to revisit something that I'd enjoyed that much to see if it stood up actually. Um, and the fact that you didn't know it, it's kind of a bonus really, cause it means that yeah. I get a completely fresh perspective on it, which I think will be really interesting. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, so, so, uh, how old were you? Maybe like 10 or 11 when you read this, uh, the first time? Yeah, or, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 11 at the oldest, I think 10. I, I should have checked the copyright date in my paperback cause that would have told me exactly. Um, but it would have been, yeah, 10 at the oldest, 10 at the oldest. Cause it was the, the paperback I've got dates to the year that the TV show came out. Cause it's got a picture from the TV show on the cover. So, um, yeah, you're talking and it's the year after Doctor Who was cancelled. So what's that? 89? That would have been 90. I mean, 90. Cancelled in 89. Oh, okay. So 90. Oh, okay. Been, uh... So it would have been 11 then. Okay. So 11. Okay. There we go. Cool. Um, I guess, I guess what I find, uh, interesting is, uh, I mean, it's definitely young adult, and it, I mean, it feels yep. young adult. Like, it's, it, it really, it really does not have, um, you know, I, I approached this, I knew nothing about it, I literally just started reading it, and in fact, I've got a little, uh, funny story about that <laughs> as we get further along, um, about, um, exactly kind of how, where my, where my, uh, silliness of not knowing anything about the books led me in terms of the process of reading these. But, um, the first thing I'm struck by is, um, a, this is middle reader kind of kind of material, so it is it is kind mm-hmm. of like ten eleven year olds. Uh, hmm. It is very much pitched at that age market, and uh, that was really I feel like as a kid I kind of graduated to adult books fairly early on, or at least to uh, to kind of like kind of classic science fiction, and you know so so I kind of graduated straight from you know very young kids books, and then from the time I was like eight or nine or ten or eleven, I was reading uh, stuff that had a little bit more meat to it stuff that like uh like the asimov work and the Heinleins and the odyssey clarks and that kind sure. of stuff um sure. without a whole lot in between but i know a lot of readers kind of fall into this kill they kind of 
have this extended period where they where they um, read these kind of materials. But I haven't. I just. I guess maybe that's one reason why I just completely overlooked it. Because um, sure. a, it's it's British, not American. And and if mm. it wasn't in my public library in 1990, then I probably didn't. <laughs> it, it was just completely outside of my uh, my range. But um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess I guess uh, revisiting it, kind of. Uh, what are your What are your thoughts? Like how to. Coming at it as a kid, obviously, it's something that meant a lot to you, and I can yeah. I can see how it might. Um, yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe start there. What did, what did this mean to you as a kid, and kind of like how did that? Yeah. Um. Okay. So it. Yeah, it had. I mean, firstly, okay. Firstly, it's it's a kind of it's a ripping yarn, right? It's a boy's own adventure in the classic mold. I mean, I actually I was surprised it was written as late as it was. Um, when I was reading it this time through, I kind of mentally had this as being like a fifties property, maybe. So when I found out it was written in '67, it felt, it felt even by then these attitudes felt a little out of date, a little kind of stilted. <laughs> but I guess maybe Christopher was writing in that style. Maybe that was the kind of thing he really liked. Do you, do you know anything about John Christopher's politics? I don't know anything about his politics. I know that he was, I know that he was big enough in the UK that his books were taught in schools. Um, okay. they didn't, I didn't happen to have any of his taught to me directly, but I remember in my English classroom when I was 11 or 12 seeing stacks of copies of his book called The Gift, which is about a kid with psychic abilities. Um, I owned a copy of that book. I can't remember ever reading it. He did one for slightly older readers called Empty World, which was a kind of post-apocalypse thing. Uh, with a teenager who's the main character. That one I have read and I can remember nothing about except the conceit. So I don't know what sure, that sure. tells you. Whereas tripods lodged in my brain, uh, much better. Cause I think it's, so I think as a kid, I loved the adventure side of it. Certainly that, that's something that really appealed to me. It really excited me. You know, um, I remember liking the fact that it felt like the kid in the story will actually had some emotional growth because when you first meet him, he's got this antagonism towards this kid, Jack, and it's told in a very one-sided way so that, I mean, for me reading it as a kid, I was like, okay, so Jack's an arsehole, he's a bully, he's a, and then gradually as the book goes on, you kind of realize, actually, no, it's probably at best six or one and a half and does the other, maybe even Will, the narrator, maybe he's actually kind of an arsehole. So I remember that as a kid, and I remember being, being attracted to that because it just felt very that felt very smart to me at, at, at the age of 11 that 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 you could create you could have a, a narrator who was ostensibly the hero of the piece but was not only flawed but was you know making judgments about other people that were unfair and then having to kind of eat his own words later or, or make the adjustment and and at least on a couple of occasions i remember as a reader and this is as a kid i remember realizing before will did that will was being a dickhead and right. that really impressed me like that did because it was like a i you know that was and i i, I you know at the time I, I had no idea that was something that you could do in a book and it just really so that i think that aspect of it impressed me i i had a thing about alien invasion i had a thing about i mean war of the worlds you got to remember like i grew up on jeff wayne's musical version of war of the worlds uh my dad had it on vinyl my mum had it on a cassette i listened to it endlessly that's like a, a seminal text to me it's a grand text and tripods very much in that milieu although it's all taking place it's almost like i mean the tripods it, i mean it isn't but it could almost be an alternative sequel to war of the worlds you know what i mean like you could because the way it's set is like imagine the alien invasion happens and it's successful right. and then you cut to a hundred years later so I mean, obviously, there's differences in the way the story of the World of Worlds plays out, but you know, you've got even the even down to the mechanics of the tripods, you've got enough sim symbolism that's the same 
that it felt like it was somehow part of the same idea or universe or idea of alienness, if you see what I mean. Um, so that, that appealed to me. Just the image of the tripod was a, I mean, that was a seminal one going right back to my earliest memories, the image of the tripod melting Thunderchild on the cover of War of the Worlds. So the notion that the tripods were the star of this story, I mean, that, that, that would have sucked me in as a kid, absolutely. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that. Um, so, so I, I guess, uh, coming back to it as an adult, do you, uh, do you still, what, what was different? I guess, I mean, again, coming to it as an adult, uh, you know, it's, it's something that you loved as a child. Are you, are you kind of mm. reading it now and going, wow, I kind of get exactly why I love this? Like a, you know, as a writer, I can, like, understand how this affected me so much. Or did you kind of approach it and go, wow, you know, some things don't age well? I, I guess, I guess, how has it aged for you is, <sighs> is the question I'm asking. It's really interesting. Well, this, this and note, note, I'm asking you a bunch of questions before I give any opinions about. Yeah, this yeah, yeah, yeah. Trilogy. No, I swear that. I swear that. I see. I see what you did there, sir. So, okay, on that. Okay, well, there's there's two there's two distinct strands of thought. I think on that. I think on the on the mechanics of the storytelling, I think it does hold up pretty well. Uh, I think the pacing is is pretty good. I think the the three books make sense in their... You know, each of them's got their own theme. The first book is like the quest to get to the White Mountains. That works very well. The City of Lead and Gold, I think, is the strongest of the three books uh, and the most narratively uh, well-structured. I mean, going the first time you go inside the Tripod City is a real thrill. And that description of the inside when you finally meet the aliens, the masters, that and that. And the, the relationship, the point at which he figures out his relationship with his master, because, you know, they're all slaves, but different masters treat the slaves in different ways. And when he decides, he, he realizes he's his master's pet. Um, that, I think that's, that held up really well. I really enjoyed that. Book three, I felt was probably the weakest. Uh, it seemed a bit, uh, this time, certainly the narrative just felt a bit kind of bitty. It felt a bit broken up. Um, and the pacing gets a bit shonky, especially when they're, they're breaking out of the city, having kind of done what they need to do. There's a, that whole, that whole bit where they go back to assault the city and they go into destroy it just didn't, it didn't quite play out for me, especially with then the weird extra, whatever it is, 78 pages at the end with the, you know, one of the cities failed and they have to do the extra plan and all that kind of, I think it worked the first time when I read it as good because of the element of surprise, but I think going back to it with maybe with the knowledge of how the plot played out, it just didn't, it didn't quite hold up as well for me. Um, but overall, and the writing on a sentence level, I think is very good. It reminded me of the Terence Dick style of writing, which is something that again was a seminal part of my childhood with the, 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 uh, the target who novelizations, similar kind of ruthless efficiency in the prose, a little bit more flowery, a little bit more old school with the language, some of it, but, but not, you know, nothing, nothing that you'd stumble over at all. So on that side of things, I, I was actually reasonably happy. And, it, and, and as I say, I, I like the story and I like some of the ideas in the story as well. What I did notice this time that obviously I wouldn't have noticed as a kid was like the thing that we talked about at the start, which is there's no women in this story. I mean, there <laughs> right. are no women in this story, and that's just surreal. It's absolutely surreal. Like there are, there are, I think there are exactly three female characters in the entire trilogy, and I think yeah, they yeah, all it's, appear. It's and his they mom. They all appear in the first. His mum. Yeah. Eloise and Eloise's mum. And, Eloise, and they all the, the appear. Contessa yeah. or whatever her name is. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. they all appear in the first book. There's no women in the resistance. 
No, not, not a single woman. <laughs> well, they're appears. they're there. They're just they're just making food for the men, no, really. You they're, know? <laughs> they're not there. No, but that's the thing. They're not even there doing that. There's not there's not a single mention of a human woman right. in the resistance. So like either we're fucked as a species anyway, because we're about to go extinct, or like like and that just makes no I mean it's a failure on a I mean that that's such an egregious failure that it becomes a failure on a story level. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it that actually becomes this is not I mean you know, fuck political correctness. That's just bad fucking storytelling to have no women in your story. I mean, that makes, it makes no sense in the context of the world that you set it in and the story that you're telling that they were like, it's, it's, it's egregious. It really is. It's an egregious failure. Um, so that really surprised me. And it, 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 it it's, I mean, it's obvious that I didn't notice it at the time when I read it as a kid. Cause uh, you know, uh, because I was a 11 year old boy and why would you notice? But it was, it was amazing to me coming back to it now, just like the, the gaping absence. And also because the amount of additional dramatic possibility introducing women to the story could have brought, right? Having women involved in the resistance could have been really interesting. You know, uh, it, it would have added a lot of depth to it. It would have created potentially some interesting moral dilemmas. You could have explored some gender issues in there. You know, the, when you've got women freedom fighters and you've got, you know, like, how does that play out? Do, do, what are the gender politics of the post tripod invasion world like? Right. Right, uh, right. Are they, are they traditional generals? Are, you know, did the resistance still fall into those things or have they created their own way of doing things? <clears throat> we don't know because it, it doesn't even come up. You know, it doesn't, but. Well, so this that is a was book. Weird. I mean, this is a series that, I mean, for a series, it's about alien invasion and this sort of, uh, you know, future that has become this, you know, what I kept thinking of it as like, it felt like a Ren Fair, you know, where you're just, you're just wandering yeah. through this kind of endless, uh, like, it's a very, very cozy apocalypse, you know. Um, sort of thing, and um, I have to say that element of it, I really, really like because yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's really strong, and I like that whole because one of the things that it does keep coming back to is this kind of discomfort with like, yes, the tripers have evaded, and yes, they've enslaved humanity with these caps in our heads, but but there's no war anymore. Right, like no one's we're not having. There's no nation states aren't warring with each other. Life doesn't sound too bad. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's rural. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's agriculture. It's, it's physical work, but it not, you know, it doesn't sound, no one's starving to death well, in the I stories. Think it's, no, I, think know. It's, I think it's pretty obvious that John Christopher had a, uh, an affinity for this kind of lifestyle and this kind of idyllic, you know, kind of rural pastoralist existence. And, to some degree, right. was writing in this way that was trying to, uh, you know, Idealize kind of sell it. the kids on it, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. And here's where, so I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to reveal my 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 mistake well, there. Go ahead, go ahead. Before go ahead. you before you do, just one more thing. All I was going to say on that is it's the Shire, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. The, what what he's basically done is turn the whole world into the Shire. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, it it, yeah. it is it is very much like I mean, it's it's very. We're doing a medieval fantasy land, only we're doing yeah. it in this kind of like it, it's the that the apocalypse came and turned everything into uh, a a picturesque me- medieval vi- village where people just happen to speak different <laughs> yeah, languages. Like that's that's yeah, what yeah, happened, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, 
So, uh, I actually, because what I did, I ended up buying this uh, series. And so we're talking about three books today, but there's actually a fourth book that was published in the late 80s. Um, there is, yeah. and it's called, and it's a prequel. It's called When the Tripods Came. Yeah. And, um, so when I picked it up, I didn't, you know, I just started reading. And so I actually, now the way I would do this is I would orient the books in, uh, chronological order by publication. So you read yep. the, the, the fourth book last. Yep. But like if I just started reading it on my Kindle app, uh, it just started me with when the tripods came. So I thought this was the, the first <laughs> book, right? Okay. And it's awful. Okay. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, there are a lot of women in it. Like there, there are significantly okay. more women. I would actually love to get your feedback on that book at I, some point. Yeah. But, um, I, I read, I read about half of it. And then was like, is this the, like, this is the book that Kit's like, oh my god, I have to talk about this? Because I'm like, there's so much to talk about. And it's all just like, all the terrible gender politics and all the terrible, okay. like, so, so the tripods come and it's all about like, so, uh, they, there's this like Saturday morning cartoon kind of thing that, mm. uh, and then this, the, and it's, uh, the tripods come, the, uh, humans like annihilate them when they, when they first arrive. So they're just like, yeah, these three pi- tripods that land. Uh, like tanks basically just destroy them. They're very, very weak. And then they come back, but then they like start, um, sending out these like, um, uh, hypnotic beams through television. Yeah. And there's yeah. this television show called The Tripods that like, you know, <laughs> that like is like, the, it's described as just like animation. I mean, it feels very, you know, right. and, and at first I thought this book was written in the sixties and they're like referencing VCR and stuff like that. And I'm like, my God, this is very like, yeah. You know, for, for John Christopher to use the term VCR in 1967 is pretty advanced, right? <laughs> and then later on, I got like halfway through the book and went, I need to look this up. Like this, this is just not <laughs> right. Something, something and then I realized, I oh no, it was written in 1987, so it's fine. <laughs> like suddenly, um, but, uh, so the, so the kids get hypnotized by the tripod, like television show, and they're yeah. obsessed with collecting all the tapes. And then, um, they start, uh, people who have been hypnotized by it, are called the Trippies. <laughs> oh my god. They go off and they like surround the tripods and protect the tripods because they can't, uh, because the governments don't want to like bomb the tripods and, uh, like kill all the people that are around them. So they're essentially yeah, actually yeah, human yeah. shields for the tripods. Then you eventually get caps and they're just like leather hats with like, you know, electronic devices and stuff. So yeah, so, so, uh, basically it, Feels very much like John Christopher. I mean, it very much feels like the kids these days with their TV shows and their animation and like those trippies, those, the, those counterculture kids. They're the ones that like caused all this, uh, terrible, uh, you know, invasion of the body snatchers style, style. I mean, you know, he's basically yeah. blaming, you know, blaming, you know, it feels, you know, for someone writing for children, it feels very like anti-youth. <laughs> you know, like it's, <laughs> it's this very, um, very, it, it felt like this very conservative bit, which is why I was, uh, wondering if you knew anything about his politics, um, because, yeah. uh, obviously you know more about him than I do. Um, you know, I, I don't feel like that that, um, comes across in the, uh, three original books as much. I mean, no. uh, you could, you could definitely read something in it, but I, I mean, you know, there's, for a book that is about, alien invasion and is about you know this uh you know alien invasion is always it's really always about imperialism and colonialism ultimately you know yeah. it's it's i mean you yeah. know uh, dating back to war of the worlds which is explicitly about you know yeah the Brit- you know the british empire being done to british people you know yeah, yeah. um 
this feels like it has been decontextualized of all of that as much as possible. It feels very, um, you know, we're gonna go kind of going through the motions of a story about these kinds of issues and we're going to kind of talk about freedom and how important freedom is and there are our kind of individual humanities is what makes us you know you know gives our lives meaning and that sort of thing mm-hmm. but it's never really dramatized in the text it's just kind of stated by will and just kind of like well of course we can't you know there is this kind of brief like crisis of conscience he has um when he thinks about becoming captain and serving the tripods and like life would be pretty good if i did that anyway yeah um so you do get a little bit of that in the first book but it's really really after that the tri the the masters are opposed because they're just they they just become cackling evil to some degree although not really so yeah well i mean the thing about that crisis of conscience is so interesting is i i remember it i remembered it but i couldn't remember how it resolved um, and I remembered enjoying it as a kid, but I couldn't remember how it resolved. And I think the way he resolves it is very, um, uh, the way he resolves it completely sidesteps the issue, right? Because rather than make it a straight choice, what he does is create uh, a scenario whereby, uh, Will can't stay behind and stay with the girl because he's going to lose the girl anyway, because the tripods take away the prettiest girl from the competition. And, she, so like, and she's described it, as obviously the most... The, the, I mean, it's not just, yeah. oh, there's this pretty girl I like. It's though she's the most fucking gorgeous thing you've ever seen in <laughs> yeah, your yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, Everyone agrees she's the most gorgeous. She likes you a lot. You're going to yeah. get to stay here yeah, and yeah, be yeah, with this exactly. girl. Except, oh, it turns out the tripods are going to take her away and she's just going to go serve them forever, you know. Now, there's there's something I like about that, which is the way that nobody even thinks to tell him that when she gets made the queen of the ball, she's going to be taken away by the tripods at the end. Because everyone else knows that and doesn't care because they're all capped and therefore it's cool. And I like that because the moment when the bottom drops out from under him is a genuine kind of lurch. It's a really kind of dramatic moment and it's really i mean it's upsetting it's upsetting for will it's upsetting for the reader like oh dude you know it's like it's a bad moment and it is and it does as you say what that helpfully does is reinforce the villainy the tyranny the oppression of the tripods right Right. um but so it i mean it it works narratively very well but what i found myself realizing this time was what was sad about that for me was it 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 sidestepped Will's moral conundrum completely. Right. He didn't come good on his own at all. He completely got like, you know, the tripods made him like go back to fighting him because they took his girl, right? They just right. completely like, they, they took this thing he wanted, you know, the, the yeah. lamp, the lamp, the really pretty lamp that he really wanted to have yeah. by his bedside. <laughs> they took that away from him. And so now it's like, Oh fuck these guys then. Yeah. Go yeah, back yeah and, and be with my buddies now, you know, bros before hoes. Come on. Like that's, the- <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it reminds me of that line from 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 Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where Xander's are like, "I want you to cast this love spell to make Cordelia love me again," and the, the woman says, "Like, uh, that's not a good idea. Uh, love spell should only be done with pure motive." And he says, "My my motive is pure revenge. Pure as the driven snow." <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. I get that. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 kind of. Uh, I mean. Uh, Structurally, I, I found myself um, interested in the degree to which this – I mean, really all three of these books are kind of uh, road movies, you know. They're kind mm. of um, travelogues. You spend a lot of time – you know, mm. the, the first book is all about we're walking to the White Mountains. And then the second yeah. book is – I mean, um, it kind of becomes – I mean, you know, the the first half of it is kind of, you know, we well, we've got to go on this journey to 
um, where the games are held and then after the games yeah. and they, you know, we end up in the city and so that, that kind of doesn't really work, but you still get that first, uh, third to a half, which is very, you know, like travelogy where we're going to different cities, we're going to different places. And then the third book yeah. kind of explicitly becomes, oh, now we're going to go spread the word and like build this like underground resistance yeah. sort of thing. And then you get like a lot more kind of, um, you know, it, it's very, it's not, it's not described in as much detail, but it's very, uh, you know, we're going around to different places. We're learning a bunch of languages and getting, yeah. you know, and kind of that kind of stuff. So there's there's this travelogue element to, to every one of these books that I thought was interesting. Like the amount of time we spend on the road is, um, yeah, is kind of fascinating. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's an interesting thing. I remember. I mean, as a kid, one of my formative experiences. So we didn't own a television set till I was at least seven years old, I think. So I I spent a lot of time being read aloud to and reading aloud. Um, and a lot of, we read, uh, my mom and I read a lot of books to each other effectively. We take it in turns. Um, and we read a few classics, Watership Downs, one immediately springs to one. But we did Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. We did the entire Lord of the Rings out loud over about, I don't know, eight or nine months. And a hell of a lot of that is people walking. So <laughs> I, I kind of was used to that kind of a narrative. And actually, by comparison, John Christopher's fucking swift, right? I mean, it happened right, like, right. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't mean that in any way as a criticism. No, 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 I mean, no, no, the, no, the books, the books it's move. Like, I mean, yeah. One thing, one thing uh, I was, I was definitely kind of, especially after doing Stranger in a Strange Land, where the mm. plot stops for a hundred pages. So like people can <laughs> talk at each other for a while. Um, this, yeah. this book moves. It really does. Yeah. Um, no, it does. you know, it's kind of moving from one incident to another to another. Yeah. Um, I like what you were saying earlier about Will kind of just being a shithead. You know, you, you definitely get that, 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 like, he, I mean, I love when he's first asked by Ozymandias, like, at the very beginning, and it's like, so is there anyone else in this village that you think, you know, might be worth saving? (laughs) He's like, no, not really. No. It's like, no, no, all my friends, everybody I know, they're all (laughs) shitty people. I'm just gonna go off on my own. Yeah, just fuck them, you know? Because it's already, like, imagine this, like, terrible life of, like, oh, and then we're, I'm gonna be captain, I'm gonna worship the tripods, and, like, I don't have, so, I mean, he's already had this in his head, like, you know, and he's like, Yeah. yeah, all the other people I know, yeah, fuck them. They're 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 yeah, fuck those they're guys. lost. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fuck my cousin Jack. I couldn't care. Right. That. He's not. not yeah. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. And then um, I think I think the story of Henry. I think I think uh, ironically, the Henry's narrative is almost more interesting than Will's. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because Henry kind of comes along, and he um, basically kind of inserts himself in on this thing, you know, yeah. and and uh, they kind of go off together, and then. It's really like his sacrifice at the at the very end. I mean, it's really his sacrifice that leads to uh, the ultimate well, toppling of the tripods. Yeah. You know? I mean, what I actually realized this read through, and it was this read through, is that Henry's the hero. I, I hadn't, I genuinely hadn't clocked that before. I clocked there was something fishy about Will, but right. I hadn't clocked actually that Henry's narrative is the true hero narrative of the. And right. You're absolutely right, it, and it plays through. And the only reason that he's not the point of view character. Is because otherwise the book would have to end 20 pages earlier and you wouldn't get what I actually really enjoyed this time. It's probably my favorite thing about the third book is the last 20 pages or so. Yeah. I love the moment when the the resistance uh, government completely collapses. <laughs> I love that was... they're suddenly like nationalists. You know, they've, yeah, they've yeah, been, yeah. And they've been free suddenly, for like then... two years. It's like, well, the French people, uh, you know, know, and they did, they they go right back into their old like yeah. national stereotypes. Like, it's like bang straight back in, and the Americans are like, we've, we've we're disgusted by what we've seen today. A great man dishonored. We we didn't need you before. We don't need you now. We're going to go back over the sea. We'll defend ourselves if we need to. What the fuck are you talking about? It's you, been you, five you, minutes, guys. You, you take care of you. We've got our own continent to take care of. You know, and don't worry, we can defend yeah. 
ourselves. We can defend like, ourselves. Right. Yeah, that's that's yeah. probably the most accurate thing in the book, really. The Americans <laughs> being horribly militaristic. Yeah, no, I buy that completely. No, but I, I, I can just like, imagine. I just imagine like George W. Bush with like a cowboy hat in that scene. Like we take care of ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> but I like I like the fact I like the fact that um, that Henry had anticipated that. I like mm-hmm. the fact that when they're talking about what they're going to do afterwards, Will's all like, "I'm, you know, I'm, I'm off exploring. I'm off. I'm going to go and live on an island somewhere or a series of islands. So I'm going to go off and I'm going to go adventure. explore the southern parts of the globe, which are all annihilated by the tripods <laughs> because nobody important lives on the southern half of the globe. <laughs> What's this southern hemisphere of which you speak? I mean, you just get it, and then and then the only references to like Asian people are like the little yellow kids, oh. you know. Oh that's, my that's god! Like literally, literally. Yeah. yeah, that was not a good moment. That was not a good moment. And you know what? As well, I mean, this is. I mean, we can talk about this. Like, uh, this is. I mean, this is an embarrassing admission, but uh, I was I was eleven and I grew up in in one of the whitest parts of the world. Like, I I remember the first time I read that, and I read the bit in the pool of fire where he comes out and it's like, oh no, one of the cities has failed. And, and he says, oh, it, it was those little yellow kids, right? And then someone else says, no, it wasn't. It was Henry's group. And I remember thinking, oh, that's really good. Like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, that's not racist. Cause, cause they did all right. You know, like right. genuinely as an 11 year old thinking like, oh, that's so clever. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, what a positive blow for, yeah. for racial equality. The, the and, Chinese did not and fail. It's- and it's clearly the little not little yellow kids literally the little <laughs> yellow kids did not let us down yes it's it's not like there was some conflict going on in that part of the world around the time this book was written that might give people a little bit more nuance to oh these God. kinds of you know events as well you know at least it doesn't become an explicit vietnam metaphor oh yeah those little yellow kids we got to go and like you know yeah, <laughs> we got to yeah. go and like shore them up you know and make sure that because they're battling this this thing. Sorry, I'm 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 not trying to shit on this series of books. I'm just pointing no, out no, no, some no, of the, no. there's, some there's of the silliness I mean, here. It, it just it's very that's a good example of of how your perspective can shift over right. the years, and how my response to uh, that phrasing has just you know done a complete one eighty from my initial reading to now, where I was reading it going like, oh my. And again, that was one of the other bits of the book where I remember thinking like. This is, this was written in the fifties, right? This is, you right. know what I mean? Like, I was really surprised that it was, it was 68. Uh, it, it felt like it had been written at least 20 years ago. Well, John Christopher was born in the twenties, so he would have been in his forties right. even at this point, I think. Yeah, um, at least, yeah, at least yeah. as I, as I recall. So, I mean, there is, there is a little bit like, you know, middle-aged white dude writing for right. nine-year-olds element to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. the series. And I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to beat up on it too hard. I mean, but it is definitely one of those elements to where, you know, when it's like, well, the entire southern half of the globe was just like eh, nobody important lives there it'll just burn it to the ground you know well um, and there's that weird bit in the third book the travelogue is travelogue uh, sorry that part of the story where they're they're spreading the word where they get to the middle east and right. suddenly it's really 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 hard to find converts and partly it's because no one speaks the language but partly it's also because the religion is really strong there the right. religion with the tripods and there's a bit where they've got them saying prayers to the tripods five times a day and it's like oh that's subtle as fuck man but really what I, are I we mean, trying to say here i, I mean with oh. a more sophisticated i mean to, to a certain degree and, and this is kind of where I, i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna uh kind of shit on the book one more time and then like okay. defend it at the no, same time right yeah um where i feel like there is this sort of element to where 
kind of the issues that we're pointing out are the fact that, well, it's a book written for nine-year-olds and it's kind of very narrowly focused on Will and Will's perspective. And yep. so we're kind of, so, so you could kind of defend the book and kind of salvage it if you just kind of say, well, this is like a 13 year old kid who's, who doesn't have the kind of like cultural understanding of yeah. anything. And like he's, yeah. he, he grew up in a tiny village with no access to books, uh, effectively, right. you know, so, so yeah. there's no, um, you can, you could kind of defend, um, certain yeah, had, aspects of this. He had 12, he had 12 books in his house. He had 12 right, books right, in yeah. his house. I mean, yeah, so, it, absolutely. Yeah. So you, so you can kind of defend it to some degree, at least. Yeah, I think so. But, um, but I, I don't think that's what John Christopher is going for, and I don't think that's <laughs> the way it really plays on the on the page. You know, it's 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 uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, making the decision to make it this kind of book and then tell this kind of story. I mean, if he hadn't wanted to like deal with the Middle East, Middle Eastern politics, or like Vietnam, yeah. don't mention it. You know, and then yeah, yeah, you can yeah, kind of yeah, go yeah, along with it. That. It's the fact that you mention it that it becomes like, okay, now this is a problem because you've brought it up and then like just completely shadow over yourself. I mean, thinking about it in terms of the fiction, you know, if, if you're going to have, if you're going to have the tripods and they're going to build three bases, aliens are going to invade Earth, they're going to build three bases. Yes. Yeah, so you're going to want one on each landmass. You're going to want one in America. You're going to want one in Central Europe somewhere. Third one. China's not the worst spot to pick. If you're talking about population density, right. China's probably the other place you do build a city, right? If, you, if you're only going to build three. Well, to, to my mind, to my mind, if you're going to build three, you don't build in Western Europe. You, you build in, you build in the Middle East, in the center mm. of that, like, Afro-Eurasian yeah, okay. landmass, yeah, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So you go for China, you go for the, I mean, the Isthmus of Panama is a, is a good spot that's centrally located among, yeah. You know, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's just this complete. No, you're right. They're, they're, they're totally arranged based on, on Western perception of, um, of, uh, of like, of the political power centers, aren't they? Rather than actual population. Actual yeah, he, he, he's just ignoring Africa completely. Like, if you just yeah. take Africa off the map, yeah, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah, Middle yeah, Europe, yeah. you know, uh, China, middle of the American con, the, 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 the two yeah. American continents. And then, yeah. But then he's just completely ignored the fact that, like, you know, a is billion there, people this, live in Africa, you know. Is there something else somewhere, some other continent we could... No, 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 no. no. And, and Australia, I mean, who cares about Australia? <laughs> there, there is this, there is this sense, um, one of the things that I found really interesting, um, I kind of mentioned Cozy Apocalypse earlier, and, you know, there, yeah. there is that kind of a, you know, it's, it kind of seems like a, a nice world to live in to some degree, you know, yeah. and, and partly yeah, that's, absolutely. you know, okay, we're viewing it through the eyes of an 11 year old. Um, we never really see like the people going down in mines and doing all the stuff that like the, 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 the masters actually want done. I mean, you know, the, the yeah. masters are obviously drawing some kind of, you know, thing out of this planet if they've invaded, you yep. know, so, so it's just that we kind of get to float along the surface of this society and, and, you know, it's a it's a fairly light yoke that the masters have placed on this society ultimately, you know, because you do have these like huge swaths of like society of of the planet that are basically going along much the way they have before. They're just kind of all forced into this like low tech society, and yeah. uh, I mean, you know, so so they have to farm, but it's not like they're feeding the masters; they're just kind of no. farming. Yep. Eventually, when you get to the third book and you are the end of the second book, and you kind of understand, oh, well, that's because the masters are just going to annihilate everybody in a few years anyway. So ultimately, <laughs> they're just, you know. Uh, yeah. But but I mean, 
I guess at that point you kind of get, okay, the masters are going to, like, they're, they're making this their new home. So yeah. they're not, they don't really yeah. care about yeah. the humans except they just have to subjugate them so that they can kind of, like, do their plans while they're here. Mm. And then, you know, um, I don't know. I found that, I found that to be a, uh, yeah, again, it's kind of like this is what the book is. It's a travelogue tr- mm. through this world, you know, as opposed to, yeah. like, we're going to now spend a hundred pages mining coal, which is what, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. if the masters really had this level of, like, control over the human population, that's what 90% of the population would be doing is, like, mining yeah. for resources, you know. Well, if that's the primary purpose, but as you say, I mean, I think, I mean, it's a little hazy. They are mining for resources. That much is made clear. Whether that's to sustain the work that's going on in the cities or as part of a wider kind of exploitation of the natural resources of the planet isn't, I don't think, ever explored. But if their primary goal is is to colonize the planet, is to transform the planet, it's not actually about, you know, it's not actually about resource extraction. It's about living space, right? Right. Um, then, then everything they're doing makes perfect sense. I think, I think what I like about the, what you called, I love the phrase cozy apocalypse. I think that's really good. What I like about that is the kind of moral ambiguity that creates for the first sort of book and a half or book and two thirds. I mean, Will's big crisis of confidence comes a lot from exactly that. He's looking at the world going, actually, this doesn't look too bad. These people, you know, and he's, he's fallen in with the, a bunch at that point of, of, of upper middle class slash aristocrats who are, who do charitable works and who are, you know, they, they're, they're very much in the very old school sort of what in the UK we'd, we'd call a kind of one nation Tory model where it's like you do have a clear class divide, but it's an obligation upon those of a higher station to look after those of a lower station and somehow therefore it's all okay. Yeah, it's, right? it's kind now, of the white man's burden, right? You know? Yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but then what's lovely about that is how that then becomes mirrored when he goes into the city and he suddenly realizes that his master is like the, the, in among the masters, he's right. a liberal. Yeah, his his master, his master is very like. I love that he's like having this conversation with the master. It's actually one of the best sequences in the in the series. He's having the conversation with the master, and uh, he's kind of like having to gingerly ask questions about like what the master wants, and uh, you know, kind of kind of like what the plan is going to be, and all that sort of thing. And uh, the master basically says, "Well, you know." There are those who, you know, he kind of senses that the master is very sad yeah. about something, and it's like there are some that just want to destroy everything. But me, I think, yeah, oh, no, let's kind of like put a little zoo here and like keep some of yeah. it alive, you know, a little thing. So yeah. there's not like you don't get any sense that there's any like, you know, no, there's no one saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't murder all the humans on this planet. <laughs> like, there's no one among the masters making that point, um, which is, and again, like one of those things where, like, wouldn't it be fascinating if there was, like, if there was, like, a dissident left among the masters, kind of like, yeah. going, like, you know, if, well, if no, Code Pink had its, had its, uh, you know, had, you know, and they could have allied with that, with that group and, like, had, like, people on the inside, masters on the inside helping the humans to take oh, down the, uh, the cities. That would have been amazing. But I like, but I, at the same time, I like the notion that the master version of the kind of, you know, of, of the left is saying, oh no, let's, let's build a zoo. Let's keep them alive. <laughs> right. That'll be, you know, that's, and, well, and we'll, the whole thing about We'll keep a handful. Well, I mean, we'll yeah. keep, you know, come on. It's pretty, yeah, you know. We'll keep the pretty ones. We'll keep the we'll pretty keep ones. The that's all we need, oh, you know? Yes. yes. <laughs> Wouldn't that be wonderful, boy? Yes, master. That would be wonderful. Oh, <laughs> so cool. No, I mean that I like, and and the way, but it is interesting the way that 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 social structure does mirror 
the structure in the castle and it's like it doesn't i mean the book doesn't play on it at all i don't think the book really mentions that but it's it's there for the reader if you want to pick up on it this kind of interesting parallel between those two positions i mean the you know the thing that you talked about with with colonialism is interesting to me as well because up until i mean it it almost feels like a cheat when you find out that that they've only got five years to to overthrow the masters before the planet's destroyed because at that point the whole it, it, it dissolves any version of the moral conundrum. It no longer exists. Yep. Once, once you're faced, once you realize humanity is facing an existential threat and it's got five years, you kind of no longer care about the, the morality of, or otherwise of the capping because it's like, no, they're just the bad guys and they have to be stopped. Now, in storytelling terms, I understand why you do that. It, it ups the stakes. Uh, it creates a ticking clock, which is always useful for, you know, for creating tension. And it drives, it drives the action forward. They've then got to figure out a solution and they've got a limited amount of time to do it. And it forces the conflict. They've got to fight the masters. There can't be a coexisting answer. There can't be uh, a peace made. It's got to be destruction. It's got to be, you know, they've got to take the planet back. Uh, and they don't have long to do it. And that's, I mean, that's all fine, but, I love so much that ambiguity in the first book and to a degree in the second book of, of the notion of, yeah, of the notion of like, it's this way of life is kind of okay. It's kind of nice. It's <laughs> yeah. kind of, there are pluses to, I mean, I mean, look at, look at, look at, look at, like, you know, I, I just, I just remember like all the descriptions of food. Because there's a lot yes. of description of food in this. I was going to mention that. Yeah, where, yeah, yeah. where they're, they're, they they spend a lot of time starving in the woods, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and foraging among the, you know, and so then when they're like eating, um, you know, at one point, to, I think he's, I think it's during the sequence right before the hunt, um, yeah, where he's, uh, yeah, you know, they're kind of wandering around in the. Uh, in the stalls and like, I think he's little, he literally grabs a turkey leg at some point. It's like yeah. gnawing on a turkey leg. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and uh, there's also a, a little behind the scenes here. I decided, um, on the basis of this, uh, the, the kind of setting of this book, I am drinking German Oktoberfest while we're recording this. Oh, very um, nice. Very uh, because nice. It, it feels very apropos, you know, um, I, I yeah. almost wish I had a few words of German to throw in here. Um, that's great. <laughs> Well, I mean, <laughs> never mind that the, the hero book two is, I mean, is a German kid called Fritz. I mean, right, right. fully, literally called Fritz. Right, right. <laughs> it's, like, um... <laughs> it's like, dude, you didn't even try a little bit. You didn't even go with Harms or, you know, right, like, right. no, Fritz. let's just go Fritz. They're all called Fritz, aren't they? They're all called Fritz. Oh, I mean, there, so there's funny. a, I, if John Christopher was not a Tory, I don't know what to, like, there, there's no way this guy was not this deeply conservative reactionary guy. I mean, you know, who had some empathy for, for his lessers, but, you know, I have I, a feeling I, he would. I peg him as one nation Tory, I do. I peg he, him as one nation Tory, basically. I, I, like, I have a know, feeling he would, he, he would not, he would not really like us talking about his book this way. Let's put it that way. <laughs> No, I, I suspect I suspect they'd have tuned off angrily as soon as I started saying there's no women. I think that's the point. We should have been like, "Well, fuck you, kid." <laughs> <laughs> He'd have been like, "Of course not, because women are inferior, and of course they don't it's get to decide boys, in these matters of state." It's a boys' story. It doesn't need women, you fool. You know. Well, I wonder how much that's like just the genre as well. I mean, and that's kind of mm-hmm. like you know, not you know, like if it is. I mean, you know, I, I mean. <laughs> I've read a lot of the young adult stuff. I, I think this was serialized mm. in Boy's Life at some point, maybe. Oh, I really? think I remember reading that. 
Um, okay. I know a bunch of the Heinlein juveniles were. We talked about Heinlein last week, so I've kind of got mm-hmm. Heinlein on the brain. He sure. wrote a bunch of young adults. And, I mean, a lot of the young adult stories are kind of that way, where it's a bunch of boys kind of, like, yeah. doing shit, you know? It just yeah, kind yeah. of becomes weird when you realize that, like, the entire world is composed just of, like, that, 13-year-old yeah. boys. Yeah. That 13-year-old boys are going to save the world because, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're the heroes of, of everything, you know? And that feels very, I gotta say, especially bear in mind this is a British writer and, uh, English writer, in fact, in the 20s. That feels very, um, that feels very spirit of World War One to me. And that's got a very sinister undertone to me. Yeah. Because of course that was, you know, the, in, in 1914, that was all about the youth going forward to prove itself martially and bring back the victory and the laurels and it'll all be over by Christmas. And, uh, we know how that shit turned out. Right. You know, I mean, I mean, this of... is, this is, this is almost like, you know, <laughs> onward with the British Empire. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. 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 There, there is this sense of like, well, you know, what, what we really need is this, this can do British boy spirit. And, uh, if, if, uh, the Americans and the Germans and the French and everybody else had just learned to, uh, submit to the will <laughs> of the, of Julius, our kind of patriarch <laughs> of the book. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you know, and, and Julius, Julius, kind of comes across as a, as a, I mean, he's doing what has to be done in that situation. And like, look, when the masters are dead, we, I'll step down. But until then, like, I, you know. I, t- I tell you what's interesting about Julius. As a kid, I I uncomplicatedly accepted Julius and uh, as kind of the father figure. And he just worked for me in that capacity very, very well. And I thought he was, funny enough, like Aslan, I thought he was a really, you know, he was almost, I mean, he wasn't, you know, he is a man. Aslan is not. But you know, like he's got that kind of, he's got that kind of aura about him in the book. He's got that kind of, and, and Will responds to that. And I responded to that as a kid, that kind of like idealized father figure, you know. Um, this I wonder time if, around, I wonder if, I wonder if Julius was born by cesarean section. There is a, <laughs> but this time around, Julius really creeped me the fuck out. He's really manipulative. I mean, oh, really, yeah. really coldly, cruelly, emotionally manipulative of Will. And it's all about getting the best out of him, you know, so he'll do what needs to be done. But like, fucking hell, man. And that, that triggered, that's, that triggered Ender's Game for me, because Ender's Game is all about that. Ender's Game is absolutely a story of a child being manipulated. I mean, that's, you know, it's, that's a key, it's a story about child abuse, in fact. I'll even go there with Ender's Game with, you know, I'll come back. We'll do that one properly. But (laughs) it's just, if I just put that down as a marker and then. Yeah, yeah. This doesn't, this doesn't go that far in that direction. No, no, no. It doesn't. I I definitely got the impression that Julius is making, I I think that the book paints Julius is making decisions that have to be made. I think that there's absolutely this sense of, Without Julius's kind of strong will and without his ability mm. to manipulate and without his kind of political skills, that none of this shit would have happened. I mean, Julius is kind of recommend, is kind of recognized as this, I mean, this strongman leader, essentially. I mean, yeah, you know, sure. that, that, but, but, like, I think that, I, I kind of, I kind of, uh, <laughs> this isn't uncomplicated at all. I kind of, I kind of flash back to Churchill a little bit, you know, where Churchill yeah, sure. is, yeah, very yeah, much yeah, like yeah. this. This this is the man we need during this well, time period. Especially the myth, the mythological version. The myth of Churchill, Churchill not yeah, the yeah, reality yeah, yeah. of Churchill. I'm in yeah, no, no, no way absolutely. trying to defend the horrible, no, 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 uh, you know, no. genocides of of you know yeah. <laughs> of Churchill. But um, the, the myth of Churchill is this, yeah, this uh, you know politician, this consummate politician who is uh, hard as nails, who uh, can inspire people, but ultimately uh, ruled with uh, kind of the iron fist. That, but that's what had to happen for the war. 
you know what's interesting about that is the if you put that read on Julius, it does explain the ending because of course Churchill famously won World War Two and then was immediately kicked out. Yep. Yeah, no, <laughs> that, the that's public. I mean, that, lost, that was he lost the election. That that was um, the know. moment. That was the moment because, for me where yeah. I started thinking, oh, it's Churchill. That's it. that, that's, that's yeah, who John yeah, yeah, Christopher yeah, yeah. is trying to you know. And we ended, but the, but. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, this time, certainly when I read it and the guy gets, you know, Julius is saying, here we are, you know, I can't remember the exact formulation, but he's clearly proposing some kind of continuity of government for another couple of years or whatever. When the, when the guy gets up to protest that, and one of the things he says is, why have you dragged us all up it? You said you would be in charge until the tripods were defeated. That was two years ago. We've waited two years and now you've dragged all of us up here. <laughs> to the to the I, white he, he has he has completely valid concerns, right? Yeah, like like every, Pierre, I'm totally like, I'm totally yeah. on Pierre's side. But it's, I am, and it's another it's Frenchman, like, by the way. Like yeah, we have two yeah. Frenchmen in this series, and they're both <laughs> badass. By the way, I'm just gonna say, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah um, in, in very different ways. But they are no yeah. Jean Paul's amazing. Can we okay. talk about Jean Paul? Yeah, I would love to talk about. Uh, so so first of all, he gets called Beanpole. Because yeah. um, Will doesn't speak French. Okay, that's I actually, fair. I find that forgivable. I genuinely do. In a way that the little yellow men I don't find. No, 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 no. I do no. find Beanpole. But then once he, once he finds out what his real name is, they still call him Beanpole. And I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> through the rest of the book, he's like this, like, badass scientist, like, building these great things. He's the, he's the, like, clear genius that's, like, making, yeah. like, wheels turn in the background. And it's like, yeah, yeah look at the Beanpole over there, you know? <laughs> It's like, what are we, 12? Oh, wait, yeah, we kind of... But, you know, yeah, well, there you go, exactly. But, no, that is, that is, or that certainly was, I don't know, because I'm not one anymore, but that that was British boy humour. That's what... Yeah. English, I mean, certainly from my own experience, I mean, I, I, I went through four or five different primary and then secondary schools just based on the fact that as a kid we moved around a, a few times. And, like, the culture from the north of England to, to the southwest of England was the same. And kids got stuck with fucking nicknames all the time. And that was it. Once you got it, you got it. Yeah. And your only way to lose a nickname was to leave the um, county. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> right. if you could persuade your parents to move you to another area of the country, you would lose it. But otherwise, that was it. And it, so, no, that rang completely true to me. That, yeah, yeah. You know, and it, it, it doesn't, the thing about it is it was never malicious in the first place. Right, right. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. not, I'm not trying so, to suggest that it was, uh, you know, I mean, I kind of get the feeling that, like, uh, Jean Paul is just a, a, a really cool guy, and he's just kind of like, yeah, yeah. Right, they call me Bean Paul, whatever. You know, like, like, he's just, he's just, alright, whatever. Um, yeah. He, he's very, he's portrayed as very easy to get along with. Like, like, there's well, no, I, there's yeah. very rarely a moment where Jean Paul acts 10% as a dickish as Will does throughout the entire book. Like, he's always thing- trying to help, he's always trying to move forward. Yeah. The thing about Jean Paul is though, he's, he's got an odd kind of, I mean, his emotional, his emotional state is very interesting. Like he's described as very cerebral. Like he doesn't, he's, he's, he's interested in problems. And like he just, I mean, I, I wonder about when I read the description of Jean Paul this time, and it was the first time this occurred to me, I almost wonder if he's like a little bit on the spectrum somewhere, maybe, you yeah. know what I mean? Oh, no, and, it's very much that boy genius, you know, kind of, yeah. like, very involved with, like, the technology or the science and the, you know, I mean, I mean, they yeah. wouldn't have put it that way at the time, but, I mean, no. certainly, that, I mean, that's the portrait. Like, that's, yeah. it's, it's absolutely, I mean, it's almost a cliche. I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, 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 sure. I mean, it is a cliche, you know, it, it, it is. is that cliche of the boy genius who doesn't really 
in our, doesn't really understand people, but understands like all this science stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, but, and, and, but all I'd say about that is I think that's true, but I also think it, given, given or irrespective of that, it's a very positive portrayal. I think he's Oh, absolutely. Really, oh, I, John, John Paul character. is in some ways my favorite character, particularly in yeah. the first book. I, I really like yeah. him in the first book. Um, he kind of receives an importance, um, as the, as the books go on and he kind of just becomes a, a little bit more of a, a plot marker, you know? He yeah. kind of just shows up and he's like, look at all these new yeah. things I've built, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, he, he kind of becomes is... like, what, um, uh, Q. He kind of becomes Q in the, He does. Um, no, he does totally game. by the end of it, yeah. There's, well, there's that clever, although again, the other bit that, that he's good at, Jean Paul, there's a clever signifier where they go into the, where they go into the ruins of the city, which I think is a great sequence, by the way. Mm-hmm. I love that one. Oh yeah, yeah. one one of the best things in the in the in any of the books the, really is yeah. in the first book where they go into the the ruins of whatever city they're. Yeah, I through, think yeah. it's Paris. I'm not sure. I can't. I don't it know felt it felt very like Paris to me. Like yeah. I mean, you know, like kind of kind of you look at like where their journey is, and the, you think the White yeah. Mountains are somewhere in North Germany. So like you're kind of yeah. on that path. I mean, it could yeah. could very easily be Paris. So. And it's and there's a subway. I mean, that's what made me think it was Paris. Right, right. That's where they where they find the grenades. Um, but there's the bit in there where they're looking at the rusted hulks of the cars, and they're just trying to figure out what the hell they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great where, like, you know, Jean Paul's earlier made the made the comment about um, this. You know, he's trying to invent the steam engine, basically, but he doesn't quite have the language for it. And they put, you know, and it's a great. And again, I remember this as a kid. Where Will points at one of the cars and says, "Hey, maybe it's you know like they're saying maybe it's somewhere where they could rest, they could stop and sit." And it's like, "No, that doesn't make any sense. It's got wheels and it's blah blah." blah. And then you know, Jean Paul's like, "No, I'm sure this was a, a mode of transportation." And then Will laughs at him and says, "Ha ha ha! Maybe powered by one of your kettles, right?" <laughs> Jean Paul just nods and says, "Maybe." And again, as an eleven, as a yeah, as an eleven year old kid, I remember reading that and going like. Oh wow, John Paul's way smarter than Will. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right, yeah. Maybe Will is kind of a dick because he's yeah. laughing at John Paul, but John Paul's completely right. You know, like in in principle, he's completely right. Right. You know? I mean, John John Paul. I mean, John Paul really never says anything that's definitively proven to be wrong in the entire no. series. I mean, John Paul is our kind of lodestar for uh, you know, like this is kind of the right way to go. And I think he's yeah, also portrayed as kind of morally. Uh, just immorally right. I mean, he's, he's absolutely this guy who is, uh, working to, uh, you know, he shows yeah. his moments of heroism and he has, and he has that absolutely. in him as well, you know. Um, I mean, you say that Henry is kind of the, I mean, Henry is the hero of the piece and I, I agree with that, but I think there's an equally fascinating story. You could just follow John Paul through the, the well, sequence of events, you know. Yes, I agree with that. I mean, when I say Henry's the hero <clears throat> of the piece, to be clear, I mentioned it earlier. I mean, I'm not, uh, all I know about all I know about Campbell is um, what I've read from Phil Sandifer ripping him to pieces and what I've heard Dan Harmon rhapsodizing. That's all I know about Campbell. <laughs> I kind of feel like that's – and I've seen Star Wars a million times. So I feel like I know enough about Campbell to – on that. I don't need to dig into it anymore. But like Henry is the Campbellian hero. Right, right. Like, yeah, no. His journey is the hero's journey. But I agree with you. I think you know if I were to pick my personal hero – it would absolutely be Jean Paul. He's awesome. He's great because yeah. he's the really smart kid. And you're right; he's he's always on the on the correct moral side of the of the conversation. Uh, he's so good at analyzing a situation, deciding what needs to be done, and then just getting on with it. Um, yeah. You know, the number of times he talks Will into just making the right call, just through relentless kind of. And also, he's I mean, the lovely moment where he goes and rescues Will at the start of uh, the City of Golden Lead. 
Yep. I mean, Will Will completely screws the pooch in that. You know, like he. he... <laughs> I love I love that he's told by Julius. You know, you're a bit <laughs> impulsive, kid. You need to be a little. You need to be a lot less impulsive. To consider your actions. The very first fucking thing he does is like getting a fight in a bar. Now, granted, he's been drinking. You know, yeah. like you know, he does get to drink a little bit of that fine German lager, so yeah, we'll, we'll, gets, we'll give it. We'll give it to him. He got And then the Germans like turn on him because, like, <laughs> oh, you're saying our beer isn't very good, you foreigner. And then they throw him in jail because he gets in a fight. I love that. What I love about that, though, I mean, because yeah, all that's true, and it, you know, the broad strokes. But what I love is the little detail where he gets up and he's like, "They say your beer is shit." And it, who are you anyway? I don't recognize your accent. And he gives his cover story. And it just so happens that the village he claims to be from <laughs> is one where they beat their guy at the games the last year and there was accusations of cheating. And it's just like, I love that because it's like, yeah, that's just the kind of shit that we would have. You know, like, ba- like, ba- basically, basically football hooligans like yeah, yeah. created this and entire sequence hellish, of events, you know. That hellish, tiny bit of bad luck. And everything else is his fault. He shouldn't have left the boat. He shouldn't have gone looking for the guy. He shouldn't have gone to the pub. He shouldn't have bought the drink. He shouldn't, having bought the drink, sipped it twice and decided to leave. All of that is his fault. And then he shouldn't have got up and beaten the guy up once he got in the fight. But there is that just that little thing, that little yeah. thing that happens. Oh no, no, no! Okay. It's it's well justified. It's just... well justified. I I, I mean, I enjoy. Yeah. It's a fun sequence, and it's, it's but it is lovely. it is very much like you know. Oh come on, Will, you're you're that bad at this, you know. <laughs> well, right, Julius should brilliant... never have trusted you in the slightest. <laughs> well, you're right. The brilliant bit is Julius saying you've got to write in your impostor. So Will's all like dolphin is for like yes sir, yes sir. I'm determined to do it. It's like we're not even a chapter later. And it's like you're in the hole, and they're right. going to be throwing rocks at you. <laughs> they're going to be throwing rocks and then rotten food, and rotten all you're food. going to get to eat is the rotten food. It's Eventually, rotten you'll get food. hungry enough to eat it, you know. Oh. And it's like, yeah, there, there's a lot of focus on hunger in this. Like, uh, there is, yeah. I, I was, I, mean, I was I, really yeah. struck by that. That I mean, a, you're spending a lot of time in this, you know, the kind of travelogue between these cities and traversing the, the bulk of, you know, the Europe, yeah. the, the European subcontinent. By, you know, 13 year olds, but, um, you know, th- there's very yeah. much a focus on, like, what they have to eat and, you yeah. know, what, what's, it's what's something going I remember on. And not in a way that's intrusive. Like, that's, you know, because a yeah. lot of these kind of books do kind of, um, get really interested in that and then it's kind of like, we kind of wander off into that, into that world of what they're eating and, you know, kind of how they're living. But this, this feels like it, it does keep moving, you know, but it, oh, it's, it does. A, it's always a concern that they have is what they have to eat, you know. But you know, the, the thing I remember about that, and actually thinking about it as we talk about it now, I think it's even been an influence on my own writing. So that's a really useful thing to, to think about. Um, I remember that detail from a kid. And I remember coming back to it this time. One of the things I was anticipating with joy was, is this going to be this this dietary slash culinary journey that I remember? And I was not disappointed. You're right. They talk about it all the time. And I remember vividly them. The, the thing about them, there's a bit where they, and I remember this from a kid, that where they find a, a, a nest, and there's, there's half a dozen birds' eggs in there that they eat, and they eat the eggs raw. You right. Know, they, and they lick the shells clean. Yeah, they so lick hungry. the shells clean. I remember that. Oh, yeah, that's a great a detail. Lovely too. detail. And they're, and you know, and they're, and they're, they're harvesting turnips and it, there's one where they have they, they steal all the turnips they can carry but by the end of the day they just can't face eating them anymore even though it's all they've got to eat they're just like <laughs> i can't eat another fucking turnip i'm just gonna have to throw them away and there's a second at one point they're at one point they're even eating raw potatoes because they potatoes. Make fire yes. you know? yeah yeah and the, the thing that i like about that is 
is what it what it reminded me of is like it it's about not ignoring the physicality of the world that you create as a writer, not ignoring yeah. the fact that you have living, breathing human beings walking through this this countryside and walking through the world that you've created, going through the problems you've got for them. And something that, I mean, I only mention it because it's something other people have commented on about my writing. Other people have mentioned to me a lot that uh, one of the things they notice about my writing is that my descriptions are very physical. I talk a lot about the physical experiences of my characters. It's a very, like, you know, to a degree that they notice. So it's something that maybe other writers don't do as much. And I'm sure this is part of why, because I remember that feeling like, because even in those sections where there's nothing really happening, and it, and you're right, the pacing's not bad. It's, the, you know, he, he, he can skip through a week or two in a couple of pages. But the way he keeps it interesting is in those couple of pages, you're hearing about them getting hungrier and hungrier and hungrier and more and more desperate and taking more and more risks. And that creates a level of tension, even as effectively what he's doing is fast forwarding one week because right. nothing's really happening. And that's, that's good storytelling. I mean, just on a mechanical level, that is good storytelling. And There's always there's that sense of like a you know what one of Vonnegut's rules for writing is you know a character should always want something even if it's just a glass of water. Like every yeah, character yeah, yeah, should yeah, want yeah. something. And I mean, here so much of it is I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Yep. Like like yeah. just and that that goes through the entire um, the entire series. You know, um, yes, it until, does. until you get to the very kind of the. The last, again, the last 80 pages, which kind of just turn into, and this is how we ended up the war. Slap, 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 you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> dust our hands odd. here, you know, like, yeah, no. Very, um, very odd. The whole last book, the pacing on the last book is just, is so shonky. It's really strange. <laughs> and I can't remember if it even worked for me the first time, but it's certainly this time through. I was like, wow, this is kind of an interesting mess, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, it's still a quick read. It's not. I mean, the yeah, yeah, no, no, no. no. I mean, it, well, and like... and what it does is it, it it does. I mean, even in that third book, and I I actually want to come back to the second book. Um, and yes, talk please. about the city. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. here. Yes, but uh, but I mean, just talking about the third book, we're just skipping around all over the place. Yeah, it's fine. Yes. No one, no one who hasn't like, <laughs> I'll put a plot summary or something at the beginning of this <laughs> so that people will like understand what's happening. Um, go read the books for Christ's sake! It'll take you three days to read these damn yeah, books. Go no, read no, they're, they're 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 really they're really um very uh, easy reads. I find yeah. um, the third book. What I what I find is that it it's sort of like he gets to the end of the second and like oh and then um we've got to like now do this whole revolution thing yeah. in one book and so he, yeah. he sets himself up. I mean. Today, there's no way you do this one book. You do this, like, you make this, like, a seven-part series, and books four, three through seven are all about, like, toppling the power of the tripods or something. The last you know, five like, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, so there, so there, there is this, because the first book is all about, like, we have to get to the White Mountains. We just have to yeah. get to this place. And the yeah. second book is we have to get to the city, and then we have to escape the city, essentially. Like, those yeah. are, you know, it's this kind of little structure. Like, that's all we're doing is, like, doing this. But then the yeah. third book, it isn't like, oh, we have to get somewhere. I mean, I kind of expected, like, going into the third book, I was like, oh, so the third book is going to be like, oh, we know where there are atom bombs located, and all we're going to do is go to this place where there are atom bombs and then take them Front to the cities and destroy the cities. You know, like, that's essentially, like, that's going to yeah. be the third book, right? You know, like, that's yeah. the whole point. And then it isn't that at all. It ends up being something yeah. very different. But I think that's why it feels like it doesn't quite fit in with the other two is because it's, um, 
suddenly were compressing huge amounts of time, years at a time yes. for, you know, yeah. um, for, for big chunks of it. I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of like, oh, and then we spent a year kind of going and wandering around for a while and spreading the, spreading the good news about the, the capitalist yeah. people, you know, so, um, <laughs> yeah. And then they go back into the city and, uh, they, oh God. So ethanol is not that complicated a molecule. I find yeah. it really hard to believe that the masters do not know what ethanol is <laughs> or have any like defense against it. You know, um, I love that they defend it by being like, well, you know, the masters, they absorb like gallons of water like every few hours because they're yeah. just that. That's just the way their biology works. And so like, it's just going to spread like wildfire. There's not one master that manages through like this tiny little trickle of alcohol gets into their system. There's not one master still like wandering around, like coming after these kids. It's the entire city goes on shutdown. Um, and you know, it, that's again, like, Oh, this is a book written for 12 year olds. So like, it's, yeah. it, it kind of justifies it, but it is, it is kind of one of those, like the, 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 I was not quite on board with the world building there, you know, and it, it does, you know, it, <laughs> it, on, be- it begs disbelief at that point. Is it know? is it is a Doctor Who fan dinging the science? Because I just, I'm going to call you on that <laughs> if that's what you're doing. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not necessarily dinging. I mean, you know, I'm not necessarily dinging the science. I mean, it works in context with the story, you know. Yeah. So, so, so it's just, it's just on, you know, for me, it is just like on that. Um, I wish they'd found some other way to do this. You know, yeah, them to right. like, oh, we're going to break in and then we're going to like find some way of like making alcohol. I liked the, uh, the idea that we have to set up a distillation apparatus. Like that was fun. Yeah. Thing, you know, I um, think so. I think know. it's a good conceit because it, and then it's one of describing how they do it because they're like, have yeah. the, like, like in the way that like the, the masters had no thought that like anybody could be doing something that wasn't for their will. So they just, yeah. they can literally just carry all this stuff through the streets. And See, the masters that, don't question I, them. Like I that's love that. that's a great idea, you know. And that you know what that reminded me of actually this time through. That reminded me of Fight Club. That reminded me of the whole conceit oh. of the second half of Fight Club, where you know where the rebellion is happening, where they're building <laughs> up and they're because de- it is like no one notices the waiters, no one notices the busboys, no one notices the, the the chefs in the kitchen. Those are the guys. Nobody looks at them twice. And they can do whatever the fuck they want to be doing. And, I, and, it, and it's the same thing. It's that you know. It's that that. For want of a better word, servant class. I mean, in in the fiction, it's the slave class, literally. The yeah, slave I class. mean, they're 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 slaves. Yeah, definitely. But I I love that. Yeah, I think that's really this that that is actually a really powerful and kind of dangerous slash subversive notion, right? <laughs> right. And that is like a rare moment in the fiction where you're actually like, oh, oh, that's a really like. Hmm, let's apply this idea to other situations and see what <laughs> right. happens. That's Results probably the, may vary, you know. Like <laughs> that, that's probably the one really uh, subversive element in the entire yeah. in the entire series. In that way, I mean, you know, if if we're viewing this as a you know as a Tory yeah. guy, kind of you know yeah, that yeah. just got just getting stuck in there because he had no other yeah. way of like justifying it. But no, but it works as a commentary on the arrogance of power. I think yeah. it's really it's strong. It works yeah, really yeah, well. Right. No, no give, I agree. Let's, I agree. Let's, let's give him. Let's give him credit for it. Why not? We've dinged him enough. Let's give him credit. <laughs> sure. I give him credit for that. And and I did like the. I mean, you know, um, the idea of like they're building a distillation apparatus and like they they yeah. they buy they get the old grain, you know, and there's yeah. just there's just food that they and that's how they can kind of convert it to alcohol yeah. and you know like i totally bought all that i mean i, I yeah. then had this like mental image of like <laughs> these kids have spent a year training on how to make booze you know <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> like they like they figured this out and it's like okay so uh what do you have to do oh, yeah we gotta we gotta learn to make booze for a year so we can you know 
like scavenge for parts and then you know yeah. um it's a it's a, it's a kind of a fun mental image you know of, yeah, of, yeah, you know yeah, no, this not... is this is our great military operation you know like all right you gotta scavenge to make a distillery i think there's something very british about that i gotta be honest i think there's <laughs> right. something very like how do we end up saving ourselves from the alien invasion Beer. That's how we do it. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> yeah, we we got we, we got to make some gin. Damn it. You know. <laughs> I mean, gin. they're they're, yeah, ba- they're basically making rotgut vodka. The, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's yeah, essentially yeah. what they're making. You know, because um, I mean, of course, there's no like quality control. I mean, they're just making. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're, they're making they're making like toilet wine. You know, but they're oh, distilling it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's so it's not just gin. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so um, that was that was really fun. And then there's the the sequence where they kind of go in and they actually have to like subdue the masters and everything. I mean, you know, it, yeah. it actually kind of gets into this like fairly nice little action story for a while there. Because um, yeah. you're you're kind of um, they do have to kind of defeat the masters, and there is this kind of real sense of peril because you don't know exactly what's going to happen. And then, oh um, yeah, yeah, the physical uh, confrontation is really good in that. And yeah. there's a great moment where where the narrator briefly blacks out. Will yep. gets like grabbed around the waist and crushed, and then he regained. And I love that he regains consciousness, and it's kind of been resolved. But it's a lovely kind of cliffhanger moment for the reader. I think. I think it's a lovely yeah. bit, right? Yeah. Um, and then they have to. I mean, it, 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 it almost. You know, the fact that they then have so many hours before the masters start waking up, and you get like mm. this. Um, sense of tension because like occasionally it's like oh one of them is twitching in the corner and it's uh, gonna wake yeah. up soon and that sort of thing yeah. and you and you start to get this very um like yeah no this is this is actually really compelling like i'm really yeah. on board with it at this point because yeah. then it's like all we have to do is open the doors but the power's out so we can't open yeah. the doors because the power's out and it's like how do we get because really what they're gonna do is they're gonna suffocate every master like they're they're, yeah. <laughs> they're committing genocide yeah. at this point that's yes, what they're they doing and i mean you know I'm, I'm gonna say, you know, nah, probably about the most justified way of, like, committing genocide really well, is, it's not, you know. It's not, it's not genocide because we know there's a mothership coming. Oh, right, right, that's true. So it's not, I mean, it's, it's still, it's still an entire population of people. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah it's, it's, so. it's mass murder on a massive scale, but it's not. I'm sorry, I'm pick, I'm splitting hands. Sure, 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 yeah, yeah. Um, it's a subpopulation, and therefore I will defend it as, as a genocide because, you know, they're not getting like regular yeah. like okay, importation what, of like it's, it, genocide, not xenocide. How's that? Fair enough. Fair enough. If yeah. we're gonna <laughs> apparently we had to talk some more to Scott Card at some point in the future. <laughs> I, I'm afraid I'm gonna make you do that at some point. <laughs> I apologize in advance. Uh, we're fine. Don't worry. Um, yeah. but I, I found. I mean, you know, the, the third book is definitely the weakest of the three. Yep. Um. But I did find it still compelling. Um, I read that entire, um, section, um, basically from the time that they get back to the city. I mean, I read that this morning. I mean, I was, oh, okay. I, I plowed yeah. through all of it and it was like, yeah, this yeah. is, I mean, you know, it's, you know, the whole series is kind of like this, but particularly that sequence I found to be, yeah, this is kind of a painless read. I mean, it's, it's very much, um, focused on these mechanics it's very kind yeah. of uh we're moving yeah. around we have to do this we go in here we bang on the door for a while it doesn't work you know we're pulling it open and you know that doesn't work oh we got to get to the hinges and oh we get to get this thing to break the hinges but um you know that's not that's not bad writing for this kind of book and it and it no. um it, i do find it to be you know kind of a Honestly, it is those sorts of sequences where I start to skim just a little bit. I'm not really paying attention to every single mechanic, but um, it's interesting. Um, I, t- I tell you what else about that as well. That reminded me, that sequence in particular reminded me of 60s Doctor Who. And that thing of like, you know, in the very early when it was like they had a remit, they, they, that whole thing of like, we've got to in, we've got to do science as part of the show. Right. You know what I mean? Like, we've mm-hmm. got to... Um, 
where we've we've got to you know we've got to introduce scientific ideas as part of the show so you get that ridiculous bit in the daleks where he talks about electromagnetics <laughs> and blah, blah so like but it reminded me of that because when he's discussing when they've got the airlock and they're discussing the mechanics of how in the hell do you disable an airlock such that you can actually that you know that that was i mean it's on a very basic level but i think i mean you're the scientist so correct me if i'm wrong but i think the science of that held up actually yeah, no, no. I, I mean, it, it 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 does it does it does hold up pretty well, actually. Yeah. I mean, because that's that's how an airlock works, basically. Right. And, and um, I really, I kind of appreciated that. I thought, no, actually, this is a. I mean, it read a little slow to me this time because I'm old enough that I kind of basically get that. But at eleven, actually, I think I probably enjoyed that because it really felt like I was kind of learning something <laughs> about the world. You know, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> There, there's a little bit of a puzzle-solving element to that yeah. uh, sequence, you know, where it's like, okay, we have to let the air in. Like, that's what yeah. we have. That, that's our goal. We have to get ourselves yeah. out so we can eat and so we can breathe, and we have to let the uh, Earth's air in so that, you know, it's, so it becomes this uh, this kind of, like, how clever can we be? And, yeah. and yet it, it doesn't feel like something that's outside the bounds of what these characters could do either. Because Absolutely. that's the other thing is like, oh, and then suddenly it becomes this, I mean, ultimately one of their big answers is, what if we just go and push the lever back the other way? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, I, I, I see that yeah. completely. Um, yeah, I loved, uh, I mean, I actually really admired that they killed the kid. You know, that, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. he's, he's one of those, I don't even remember his name. So he's one of those kind of no. vaguely nameless, uh, you know, guys who is kind of in on the crew, you know? So, I mean, it's a curiously yeah. underpeopled book in the sense of like, I mean, you really are just following Will and a couple of his buddies around for most of, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the fall of civilization, you know? Yeah. No, very um, much so. Yeah. But, uh, I did admire that moment that it went there, that it actually killed the kid, yeah. that the kid actually I gets did. electrocuted. Um, and then they go, well, what, what if we just, push the lever back all right sure might as well try it um the one thing that i i really wish that i was thinking is like well if you push the lever back doesn't everybody's cap start working again like uh, you know like you know so so i i, I wish that like that was the one thing i was thinking yeah. like oh and then suddenly all these cat kids are gonna like start to like you know come back to zombified nature and then they're gonna you know turn on them again like that um, that could have been fun because there was that great moment where they interact with the cap kids isn't there before they turn it off and one of the kids is like what should we do should we kill ourselves what should we you know like really freaking out and yeah they're just I mean, like, no, no, no. Like, no 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 they're, they're, they're just asleep okay. they're asleep it's, it's fine the they're it's asleep. fine they'll be fine I, I mean, I, I, I was kind of on that, like, is he literally going to have these kids just go and like, like, there's going to yeah, be this yeah, mass, yeah. like, lemming style over to, you know, right. the, the, what is it, the, the, the palace of, uh, Happy sweet release, release or, whatever or happy release or whatever, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah remember, like, yeah, my right. god, and then all they do is they just walk in and then they just get on a conveyor belt and they just burn. Yeah, and they, <laughs> yeah it's just over, feed themselves you know? into the furnace, like, yeah. ah! Yeah. I, no, he didn't, didn't go there, but yeah. Nice moment though. What do you think? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And then it does it because like, no, 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 the masters, they're still, yeah. they're sleeping. It's fine. It's fine. Don't yeah. kill yourself. Kill yourself tomorrow. Yeah. Like, you yeah, know, yeah, that's, yeah. that's almost literally the answer, you know. It's that exploitation. What I love about that is the way they get around it is it's the same, the same exploitation they've used to get away with building the stills in, in plain sight. The masters works on the capped as well because another capped person can't be lying to them. Right. So if they just say, "Hey, no, it's fine. Everything's cool. Just chill out. They're just having a rest. They'll need you when they wake up. So just, just chill out." Oh, okay, that's fine. And just tell everyone else about it. Spread the word because they know they can't be being lied to because they can't. Right. It works. You know. 
I wish we had gotten um, at some point a a viewpoint, like a, a even if not like a strict POV. I wish we'd gotten a little bit of a viewpoint of what it is to actually be capped, and what the experience yeah. of that is like. Because we spend all our time in Will's head, and then and, and other people who were never capped, like those are our main characters. Yeah. We never really get yeah. a capped character and see the world through their eyes, except like oh, well, we just love the tripods. Like we never get like where those, how that level of um, where the cognitive dissonance plays and exactly what See, form that takes. You okay. Know? I'm going to, I'm going to hit you with something here though, Daniel, because here's the thing. So we're two people. I, th- okay. I think you would describe yourself as, as an atheist. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would describe myself as a strong agnostic with atheistic tendencies. So I think you and I will be on the same page about probably 97, 98% of any. I, I wouldn't even necessarily disagree with your description of yourself for myself because Fine. Like, if you're, okay. if you're yeah. talking about like, because agnostic and atheist and that, this is not the place for that conversation necessarily, no, 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 no. but you know, no, no, no. um, well, you, you, you know about Huxley being Darwin's people and you know Huxley invented the word, uh, agnosticism. So I mean it in the Huxleyan sense of sure, agnosticism. Sure. So yeah. that's where I sit. Um, but so given that, I would say that the, the reason that we don't ever get the cap perspective, for me, that feels exactly the same as the division that exists between myself and someone with a religious perspective. I can't see their world because their world is not my world, even though we live in the same one. It's it's a fundamental break in perception. It's a fundamental just disconnect that we have. Well, and, and here's the question. I, have you have you ever been religious? I've held beliefs that I now consider to be irrational. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure that I would ever have described them as religious beliefs. Okay. I, I, at a, at a certain age, at a certain time, I would have described myself as spiritual, but not religious. I would no longer describe myself as either of those things necessarily. So, I don't know, that doesn't really help, but. Sure, no, I, because I was, um, you know, I was born and raised in the American South in this very kind of enculturated religious environment, and, right. uh, I kind of embraced science and, um, kind of reason from the time I was old enough to understand the idea, like I, I was very kind of like religion never mattered to me. It was never something that was something that was part of my life, but I actually converted to Christianity in my teens. Like, and I was very, um, you know, I was never a conservative douchebag Christian. I was always the like liberal, you know, like, you know, the, the beatitudes are way more important than the uh, 10 commandments kind of Christian, you know, and you know, all of science is real and all that sort of thing. But, um, and it was actually, I mean, you mentioned mere Christianity. It was mere Christianity that did that for me. Like reading. Yeah. No, I mean, and and I met some people and like, I mean, it was, that's a very, it's a very interesting kind of intellectual journey I went on. Um, yeah, this probably isn't it. the time to discuss it like in detail, <laughs> but, um, you know, I would, I would differ from your perspective about like that there's this unbridgeable gap because people do bridge that gap, right? And so, you know, when I was religious, I was not necessarily a different person than I am now. But, but do you bridge the gap or do you move between two distinct states? Because I, I mean, to go back to your question that you asked me, I, I was religious. I, I, I was, I was Christian at five because mm-hmm. I went to a Christian school. Uh, it was a church in the school and I was raised and therefore I was taught by teachers that there was God. So I believed in God because they told me about it and they were my teachers mm-hmm. and I was five. And my mum never talked about it and I never asked her about it, which is just weird, but I didn't. So I just like, and I believed in it up to the age of, 
I don't know, I was six or seven, and I remember asking my dad if he believed, and he said he didn't. And I had, I remember I had about half an hour of completely freaking out, because I thought my dad was going to hell. And then I was like, this is clearly and obviously bullshit. My dad is clearly not going to hell. This is therefore a complete nonsense. Like, it just, and it just, the spell just broke for me. But the thing about it is, I can remember how it felt to be that five-year-old. I can Mm. remember that, and I can remember how it felt. But it was a distinct state from where I am now. And I couldn't be that five-year-old again. I couldn't go back into that space. Sure. I guess, I guess for me, the experience is different because, um, you know, you can never be convinced out of a position you weren't convinced into. I was both convinced into and out of religion. Right. You know? Okay. Yeah, so, so for me, very it very much experience. was a kind of intellectual ascent kind of, yeah. like, you know, no, uh, fair perspective. Enough. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that like, there are more varieties of religious experience than like, I mean, I don't think you were trying to like okay. be overly simplistic, but I think that there is more to, you know, as someone who is not religious and as someone who um, doesn't have any time for, for religious, uh, you know, observance or anything. I, I mean, I get that, um, Christopher is trying to kind of portray this as this sort of like, um, like religious fervor that these people have, but he's obviously yeah. kind of also trying to portray this, um, that, they, that there's a variety. I mean, you know, going back to they enter the Middle East and these people are just really, really aggressive about their love for the tripods. Whereas, you know, in the in the village where um, Will grows up, you know, they're kind of like, oh, well, you know, hail the tripod, you know, like we, yeah. we don't talk about these things. It's very British, right? You know, like, oh, no, See, we don't talk about these things, you know. But I, I, I saw that. I saw that as being the tripods um, building their own religion on the back of existing religions in the same way that existing religions have built themselves on the back of the traditions that went before them. So, I mean, I, I, I happen to know this from the Christian side because I happen to know Christianity better because I was raised in a Christian sure, religion. Yeah. I'm sure the arguments I'm about to employ would apply to Judaism, would apply to Islam and the countries where, where it's, you know, more ascendant. But like, you know, the fact that Jesus' birth is celebrated at the time of year it is has nothing to do with that being the time of year that Jesus was born. It was a pre-existing pagan tradition, and they jumped on top of that and went, okay, let's have a winter festival. You're having one anyway. But now it's called Christmas, because right, that's right. when Jesus was born. And you know, so, like, so, Easter, like in Easter this... festivals and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, the tri- if you look at the way the tripods work, I mean, and it's, it's almost explicit in the text that that's what the tripods have done, is they've just bolted tripod worship on the top of whatever the local religion is so when they get to the middle east that involves praying five times a day because that's what they already did right. when you're in you know c of e backwater rural england well that means it's, yeah you go to church a couple of times a month maybe and you just say <laughs> hail the tripod. yeah hail the, hail the tripods and you know hail let's all go work in the coal mines you know like that's the day exactly yeah yeah <laughs> And that's just, you know, that's just difference in, in the, the pre-existing culture. I just think that's interesting to me because it's, I, I mean, if, if our read of John Christopher based on this book as a, a one nation Tory is right, he probably wasn't anti-religious at all. And yet it's an inescapable part of, of the way that capping works is that it's, it's explicitly linked to a religious experience. I think that's very interesting. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, I, I guess for me, I would, I would then kind of question, like, basically what John Christopher was saying. Well, the tripod, the tripods are false gods. And so that's why it's bad, right? Yeah, there's always that out. No, yeah, but yeah. I just, but I do think it's really interesting. Cause even yeah, yeah. with that, what he's saying is these existing power structures and, uh, cultural structures, cultural frameworks 
can be used for good or evil, right? I mean, sure. you, that's an which is which is which is which is true. Well, I mean, which is which I, is I mean, yeah, I, I very agree, true. You know, like yeah, but no, absolutely. Also, a dangerously subversive message. I would have thought. I mean, that's quite. Well, yeah. and, you know, it's something that I I say. You know, if your religion tells you you have to like hate gay people and and people of different skin color of yours and people who speak different languages, then I oppose that completely. But that same religion yeah. is also the one that like motivates people to like feed the hungry and the poor and yeah, 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 go yeah. off and stand up against totalitarian regimes because they believe that their god is on their side. And this is and this is yeah. kind of a subtlety that I mean yeah, a yeah, more yeah, mature novel, a novel that was not written for ten year olds, mm. could explore. The way that the tripod, like, if what we're trying to say is that the tr- the capping is enculturating this kind of religious belief in people, that different people would have different levels of, like, belief in it, right? Yeah. And would have different responses to it. And would, you know, well, I worship the tripods by doing this. And, like, I mean, you could very easily have a character in the novel who was capped, but yet believed that they had to work for human resistance because that's better for the tripods in the long run. That working for the resistance from the inside and like working to make a peace between the humans yeah, and the tripods, yeah, yeah. because otherwise the humans are just going to annihilate the tripods. Like, wouldn't yeah. that be an interesting kind of perspective to actually? I mean, and that's kind of where I, I feel like if there is a a kind of big gaping just hole in it, I, I really wish we had gotten a glimpse at like what it is like to be capped. And uh, I guess from the yeah. Contessa, you get a little bit of that. You get, I mean, you get a little bit here and there, but yeah. um. It very uh, soon it just becomes this very simplistic, almost bloodthirsty, you know, thing. Well, and the thing about it is, as well, is that it's it's a, it's a it's a central preoccupation of the characters early on. Yeah, Will keeps worrying about it, and the and the resistance to worrying about it. Can they read minds if you're capped? Because right. when they're going, remember, I mean, that's one of the the things about City of Lead and Gold, which I know you want to talk about. So I guess this is a good introduction, maybe. But like. One of the, in the first chapter where they're talking about that, because all the resistance people have got the false caps, right? And there's the great bit where they're like, you could all just be killed as soon as you get in the city. Because right. for all we know, they use the caps to read your mind and they'll know immediately you're false caps, in which case you'll just be exterminated. Right. And that's like, you know, so that, that central mystery is, is incredibly important to the characters. And yet, as you say, never really explore the result <laughs> right. in any meaningful way uh beyond you flip the switch and it stops working right and then when and you then flip it back on again it's still not working yeah so reason. i i guess i guess once the connection is broken you know it's uh, yeah, like, oh no really you know and it's and it's hard especially if you do view this guy as a tory it's hard to not view like and then we have this enforced ideology we have we have the worship of the, the tripods it's like and those are the communists sure um, it's hard to not view it as a red scare kind of thing except, because all yeah, of these stories ex- are kind of red scare things, right? Except, I mean, it, yeah, except they're explicitly colonialist, except they're right. explicitly Nazis as well. So I yeah. don't, I, I mean, I think the masters really are interesting. I do. Yeah. And I love, I mean, Will, the fact that Will's master is by master standards a liberal and still by our standards a monster would not actually that wouldn't be any different from someone in Edwardian times who would describe themselves as a liberal who would still be seen as a monster by any poor fucker living in one of their colonies, right? Right, exactly. Oh well, you know, I I mean of course I I'm I'm okay with like shipping the grain not shipping the grain to India and like shipping it to other people instead because, you know, ultimately we need it more, but you know, I feel bad about it and I really think, you know, what we need to do is we need to save all this Indian literature. And that's what I have. I have all this literature from India and like all the people are going to die, but like we still have copies of, uh, 
they're holy writings and therefore it's okay. Like that's the sort of yeah. perspective, you know. Well, the the line, you know, the line I remember from um I can't remember I, I half remember from some, you know, school thing we did on the slave trade when I was 11 was like, oh, well of course we educate them when they get here. We teach them mathematics, we give them language. You know, it's not all bad. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, and, and they we, get to, you know, they get to live in Western civilization, which is the yeah. greatest civilization on the planet. Yeah. And like, clearly, it's better to live here as a slave than to go back to where you come from. And yeah. uh, you know, I mean, and you there, there's and you hear and that today, yeah. like people, just, yeah, people yeah, in the United yeah, States no, justify yeah. the slave no, trade 150 no, years no. later in precisely that way today. Yeah. So you know, this this yeah. is not like me putting words into people's mouths. No, no, I know. And then uh, oh, or even I mean, my all-time favorite non-rebuttal of the slave trade is when they say, "Well, you know, the people in Africa who sold them to us in the first place." But, yeah, okay, you're literally saying two wrongs make a right, are you? That, that's literally your moral fucking argument to me, is it? Yes. Someone else did something bad as well, so hey, just the world, <laughs> fuck off. You know what I mean? You're like, anyway. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, let's, uh, let's go back to the, uh. <laughs> Controversial opinions. Fuck the slave trade, sorry. <laughs> the slave trade is awful. Yeah. I'm just gonna come, I'm coming down against it, goddammit. <laughs> I don't care what you say about me. I'm against it. I don't care what you say. The triangle trade was a travesty of human proportions. <laughs> you know. So uh, just, uh, I guess, I guess, just in this uh, kind of wrapping up sort of sort of mode, and you know, we're not under any like time constraints as far as I'm concerned. Sure. But you know, uh, I did want to just talk about uh, two one one kind of minor bit um, from the second book, and then one mm. you know basically half the second book. <laughs> we still have to talk about half the second book, uh, but you, you have kind of various elements of it. But um, the first mm-hmm. thing, the, the, the more minor bit is, uh, what do you think of the hermit character that uh, you run into? Um, yeah. Who, who is not capped, but because he's kind of lived alone, uh, you know, he's if you're not in a population center, the tripods just don't notice yeah. you sort of thing. So they never capped yeah. him. So so I'm, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that character or kind of the way that that resolves. I uh, yeah I I really loved that moment. I mean, first of all, just in terms of the story, it's worth noting that moment only occurs in the first place because Will fucks up so spectacularly at the beginning, yeah. and it 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 feels a bit like um, I mean that whole sequence. You, if you wanted to, you could cut hmm, three or four chapters out of City of Lead and Gold just by not having Will be a dickhead in chapter two. And then right. the barge could make it to the games. They could have the games. So they could go straight in the sea. In that sense, in terms of the narrative, that whole sequence is pure fluff. It's pure runaround. It's pure running through corridors. I mean, if I you could you could sense. open City of Lead and Gold at the gates of the City of yeah. Lead and Gold. Like, I mean, there's no. I mean, there's no like narrative. Well, I mean, open it, open it at the games because I mean you want to do that, but yeah. Well, well, I mean, even even okay, sure. So so at the games, which you know just yeah. kind of made me think of oh, it's the Triwizard Tournament. It's just you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, there's there's a sequence where um, yeah. after so so Beanpole uh, John Paul, I'm going to call him John Paul. Uh, John yeah, Paul yeah. and uh, Will have John been uh, riding down yeah. the the river for a while on a door because that's all they they, they, yeah. they you know they, that's all they have to 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 drift on and um they kind of get uh off to the side they 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 run aground and then they're kind of a tripod smashes the raft oh try that's right a tripod smashes it that's right and then um they get kind of picked up by this uh hermit guy and Mm -hmm. you kind of gradually learn like oh no he doesn't have a a cap because he's kind of living off on his own and doing his own thing 
he uh, basically is intending to turn the boys into uh, kind of unwilling slaves for a while. Like, oh yeah, I'll keep feeding you like this delicious food, but now you got to go uh, work. And I got you to what is it? What is it? He's trying to get them to build. Oh, I can't even remember. But it's it's it's, it's um, like you got to clear a bunch of branches. Room. Yeah, yeah, yeah they like, got to yeah. clear a bunch of land, and and maybe he wants to build a storeroom or something. I can't. Remember exactly <laughs> and they're like, we got to we got to get out of here like tonight. Like, come on, come, let's yeah. let's just get this done. And then like they get like nowhere on the first day, and it's like, oh well, you'll be here. I'll keep feeding you until it's done. Um, and then they they steal the old man's boat. Yeah, and it's and I mean, and it's explicitly. I mean, you really get a, a you really feel for this guy, you know, yeah, because it's like absolutely. that boat was like one of the few things he actually cared about. In his life. I think I think it's a lovely sequence. I mean, where where I was going with when I said you could cut the entire first four chapters of the book and open at the games was, uh, you could do that in terms of narrative. You would miss this moment if you did, and that would be a terrible shame because I think it was a great moment in the book. I mean, there's 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 a mechanical reason not to drop it, and I I I know nothing about Christopher or his writing style, but the the fact that the tripod smashes the raft actually does become significant. They revisit that in, in book three when they're looking to capture a tripod. Will remembers that moment and says, oh. they get curious. So if we give them a curiosity, maybe that will give them something to chase and that'll, so it does feed back into the narrative in book three in, a, in an interesting way. Um, so yeah, that that's true. That's true. I, I, I missed yeah. that connection, but yeah, no, that's, that's true. And so it could have been smart seeding, but even without that, the, the fact of them ending up in the island, that whole sequence with that man is really interesting because you're right. He's, he's uncapped. But he has absolutely, cause they, they try and kind of, they, they don't, they, they try and kind of recruit him. They try, they try and talk about who they are without talking about who they are. But he's just not interested. He's just, he's just surviving. He's just like, you know, I've, I've got my life here. I don't, I mean, why, why would anyone want to have any conflict with the tripods? I think there's two things about that. One is the notion that it's the moment where you kind of, well, I mean, you could argue he's addressing a, a problem with the fiction. You could argue that a smarter reader might be reading this and saying, they can't have capped everybody, it's not possible. Right. And what he's basically saying with that is, no, but it, it, they've capped so many people that it doesn't matter. Because the few survivors are still brought up surrounded by the propaganda. And if they're, if they're isolated enough not to be part enough of a society that they're going to be capped, they're also isolated enough from other people that they're not going to form any kind of resistance. And that's exactly how it plays out with this guy. As soon as there's any notion of joining some wider society of resistance, he's like, what are you talking about? That's a crazy idea. But it's a genuinely moving moment. And I, the, the moment when they, they, the boat pushes away and the man chases them into the river and he stands there and, and Will describes the stricken look on his face as they're taking away his boat. And of course, it is the physical loss of his boat is a massive, yeah. massive, massive problem. Because that guy, uh, how he gets off the island from that point, I don't know. So it isn't, I don't want to kind of underplay the way that's going to physically impact on his day-to-day life. But I think there is an emotional resonance too, because he's lonely. This guy is just so lonely. He lives well, out there by himself. Like, and he it's not does only- take... He it's takes not only really good care of them. Do you know what I he mean? He does. Like he feeds he them. I mean, if you're them. talking about the food that he does, I'm yeah. like, I would eat that. That sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm down for this. Like this yeah. old German hermit is going to give me beer and like delicious sausage. Like, yeah, let's go. 
thick slabs of ham and he doesn't care how much you take like yeah, yeah. if you're a 13 year old boy i mean basically i just imagine adric in this moment and he's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's just sitting around like oh my god i can eat all this and then like yeah. oh no you gotta go you gotta go build a storeroom and he's like oh fuck that shit i'm gonna steal your boat like you know yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, no, I I really thought that was an affecting moment. It was one of my yeah. favorite little like kind of minor moments in the book, and something that I yeah. really um, thought was uh, worth kind of bringing up. Um, just yeah, to, just no, to, uh, I'm, putting, I'm glad you did. It was it. on my list. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it, and it it actually for me it makes sense of that entire sequence because narratively, as I said, you don't need it, but when you couple the fact of the tripod smashing the raft being significant in book three and the emotional impact of the scene with the hermit. For me, that yeah. gives that entire well, what otherwise is a pointless runaround. It gives uh, it form and purpose within the wider narrative. It is a pointless runaround, but it's also meant to. I mean, to the degree that it's like, okay, the plot of this, the real heart of this, is in the city, so we don't need any yeah. of this. But yeah, yeah, to yeah. the degree that the story is about Will becoming a more mature adult, yeah, this is all about what that is because it's ultimately yes, Will absolutely. fucks up, and then everything yeah. that this you know this man loses his boat. Yeah, and loses his because connection Will to the, fucked because up. Will fucked up, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so the the impact of Will's decisions are not just affecting Will; they're affecting the rest of the world. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. And and the book really doesn't dwell on that, but it absolutely like that's certainly you know it's there. And now we got to get to the city, and I think we have to talk about yeah. certain elements of this. Um, oh, because, let's, let's go for it. Because I think um, I actually like the first book the best in terms of like enjoyable read. I liked oh, the first, I liked the, okay. I liked the travelogue in a seven and the kind of yeah, like, yeah. it was just kind of fun. It was kind of like, it's very yeah. straightforward. It's very like, it's just kind of, we're just going to go along. I liked, um, John Paul is kind of more of a, a primary character than when he kind of drops out, you know, after the middle yep. of book two, I'm kind of less involved. Um, I liked the kind of the, the threesomeness of it, the, the kind of, yeah. um, this trio of boys kind of going on this yeah. adventure. Um, the fellowship, but, if you will. <laughs> the fellowship. I almost referred to the hermit as the Tom Bombadil character, and now I just did <laughs> so, you know. Postmodernism. <laughs> um, no, I, I think what's really fascinating to me about the city is the way that, um, because I don't think, I mean, certainly reading it, I had no concept of what you were going to run into when you got to the city. And then yeah. I think, um, you know, you're kind of, okay, well, we have to act as willing slaves. We have to just do whatever they say. We have to be completely abject. And they seem to kind of get along doing that. And then when you run into these, uh, like, they're, they're kind of described as these haggard old men. And it's like, oh, I've been here for two years. And it's like, yeah. holy shit. Like, that's yeah. how bad life is here. And that's how, like, like the, the, the masters, like, they're just, we've got more. We can have, we can have as many slaves yeah. as we want. We'll yeah. use them up. And we hope they live for a while. We'd like, I mean, it's nice that they yeah. do, but yeah. ultimately they live out their usefulness and then they go die. And then I've just got to go get a new slave. And then that's, and that's all it is. That's, that's what they're doing here, you know? And that's why the method of selection is physical prowess. Exactly. Because why, anybody yeah. who isn't strong and fit and fast, cause I'm like, yeah. why the fuck do the masters care who wins the silly long jump yeah. contest? And yeah. oh no, no, that's the answer because like based on this gravity sense. and based on these, you know, Suddenly, yeah, yeah, we just need the strongest and the biggest, and then they're still going to work themselves to death over the course yep. of the next couple of years. But, you know, yeah, eh, what are you going to do? Like, come on. <laughs> can't, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs, right? Like, Yeah, you know. right. Um, I was really struck by – I mean, we've kind of talked about the um, – about um, Will's master a little bit. Uh, but what we haven't yeah. done is talked about Fritz's master. 
Yeah. And that relationship. We really haven't talked much about Fritz. I mean, we mentioned him a little bit at the beginning, but we really haven't talked about Fritz and Will's relationship and kind of what they do. And I, I kind of just want you to talk a little bit about that yourself, if if you don't mind, kind of like, like how you see that relationship and how you see what's kind of really going on there. Okay. So, I mean, first thing is that Fritz, if, if we needed more evidence for our thesis that Will's kind of an asshole, Will's relationship with Fritz kind of, for me, is, the, the prime case of the prosecution against Will. Because Fritz clearly, from the get-go, from the beginning of the book, even before they get to the city, is clearly many times more competent than Will. Yeah. Is clearly many times more stoic than Will. And then he gets the shittiest possible end of the stick when they get to the city. He gets an absolute vicious master who you know, beats him relentlessly for the smallest transgressions, gives him impossible workload, and then beats him for failing to complete it. Spends his entire time in agony. And and Will spends the entire first two chapters in the city feeling desperately, desperately sorry for himself. <laughs> and the right. shitty state he's in. And then he meets Fritz, and he finds out what's going on with Fritz. He's like... Oh, maybe, maybe my lot is not quite so bad as I thought. Yeah, no shit. Well, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you're living the life of a pampered show poodle, exactly. whereas like Fritz is essentially like, like a, Fritz like a like tortured dog. dog. You know? Yeah. 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 It's, oh my God. And that, so that's really power. I mean, I, you know, Fritz is clearly, a, 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 I, I mean, I, Fritz kind of bothers me. I've got to be honest. Fritz doesn't feel quite like, a real person. No. He feels no. like, uh, he feels very much like an English stereotype of German stoicism. Oh, those stoic uh, Germans, you know, they yeah, can just take a whipping and keep exactly. on ticking, you know. It's, it's not, I mean, the worst of that I've ever encountered is, I don't know if you've ever read this, Lovecraft did a short story about a German U-boat commander from the perspective of a German U-boat commander, and it is hysterically funny in its awfulness. I mean, I, I genuinely recommend it as an object lesson in, this is why racism is bad. Not because it's a moral failure, although it is. Not because it's intellectually wrong, although it is. Because it makes for really shitty fiction. It, it just, it ruins your ability to tell a story properly. Because, he, you know, he can't do it. He can't, he, he, he considers the Germans to be inhuman and subhuman, and therefore when he's trying to write from their perspective, he can't fucking do it. It's not right, a functioning right. human being. Now, Fritz isn't that bad. Fritz isn't even in that league. But it is the same sport, if yeah, you know it's... what I'm saying. And, and. Oh, was that a Pulp Fiction reference? <laughs> oh, it might have been. <laughs> Daniel, I know you, I love you. I'm going to yeah. drop in a Pulp Fiction yeah, reference. We're good, we're good. You. Don't worry, don't worry. We're, we're fine. I was, I was just. You know, really what I'm saying is that when Will enters the holiest of holies, you know, then, uh, you know, he's got... (laughs) But would you give your mother a foot massage? No, okay. So, (laughs) Would you give your master a foot massage? (laughs) You don't have a choice. Will does, doesn't he? He, ends up he, going he there. pretty he pretty much has to pretty much has. I mean, at one point he's literally described as like, "Oh, I have to rub this guy's back yeah, or whatever this, you know. Yeah. I have to rub him, and like I can't ever like say I'm tired or anything. He has to just like mm. like the physical exertion is is like just exhausting to him at, at this point. Yeah. And then, but then through doing that, meanwhile, like he learns. Meanwhile, Fritz like, is being beaten half to death <laughs> right? every night for nothing. Right? Exactly. I, yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's really. I mean, obviously, you know. It's not even a metaphor. The word slavery is used throughout the book, right? So yeah, let's yeah. just start there. So, so it's a slave relationship. Um, and obviously 
with the exception of our our two heroes, with the exception of Fritz and and Will, the other participants are quote unquote willing slaves, by which we mean brainwash or whatever. Right. I mean, the, the cap means that they submit to whatever. Whatever happens to them is for their own good, right? Yeah, because and it's for the glory of the. Because the tripods the know all. The, the masters know all. The masters are you know right. So of course, yeah. So you have to bear in mind that what's happening to Fritz, his nightly torture, is being inflicted on him by a creature that knows that. So, in the creature's mind, this is not... This is not punishing Fritz. This is an act of pure wanton cruelty. This is an act of absolute sadism. Because he's not doing it to correct Fritz, to improve Fritz, or because he's angry at Fritz for doing something wrong. Because he knows, because of the way capping works that Fritz is doing everything he can to the best of his ability. Right. So therefore, the guy, the you know, Fritz's master's actions are, are the actions of pure sadism. It's, it's pure violence for violence sake, uh, and abuse for abuse's sake, uh, I think. And that's really fucking dark for 12-year-old fiction. That's a really heavy thing to lay on. Okay, so it's pure sadism. So, so like, in the context of slavery, and slavery is, I mean, it's text, not subtext in this particular case. That tracks to what we were talking about earlier about the, uh, narrative, um, the, the notion that although within the slave owning classes, in this case, the aliens, there was a spectrum of opinion clearly from Will's master being like, their interesting curiosities, and it's kind of a bit of a shame we're going to have to wipe them all out. Maybe we can keep a couple so that we can, you know, study them because they're kind of pretty and interesting. Through to clearly this feeling of them just being no better than animals and deserving of no more than than total and unrelenting cruelty, irrespective of the capping or anything else. So that's kind of how I read that. I mean, I've got to say that's informed in part by the fact that I was you know, at, at 10 years old at primary school, I was given uh, a lesson that we spent um, six weeks, I think, of our history classes in primary school learning about the slave trade, it, slave trade and it had a gigantic effect on me. It had a massive impact on me. Um, the scale and the cruelty of it is something that, it, it, when you look at the pure numbers, it's just impossible to deal with. But when you start to zoom in on individual stories becomes just benumbingly horrifying just you know just uh if you're if you've got any kind of empathy at all for the human condition it just it just crushes your faith in the human in the human animal you kind of just you know you, you read stories about slavery for any length of time and you kind of just want to wipe everything out and go back to starting with amoebas you know you just feel like there's no point in any of this we're just irredeemable as a as a species. Um, oh, absolutely, that we, that we can allow such a cruelty to continue. So it's very interesting. I think in that context, in the book, that's how I see the Fritz thing is about saying like, um, I mean, narratively, one of them had to have it easy, or they were never going to get out. Um, <laughs> right. So if they were both just whipped continually, then you know they would have yeah. just died in the first two weeks, and it's over. And also. Know? Will Will wouldn't have fucking coped with it because he's a wimp, right? I mean, like, Will's just not not strong enough to have dealt with that shit anyway. Um, but and it's really useful because what I what I like about the difference between the two treatments is is the way it therefore expresses 
the fact that there's differences within the political, that there's a political spectrum within the Masters. Right. That's really interesting. Um, and for all that it ends up not mattering because of the master plan, because of the, you know, for all that it ends up not mattering because, oh, they're going to wipe us all out in five years and therefore they're all massage twirling villains and we've got to kill them. For a little while there in the book, it creates this really fascinating glimpse into there's politics even within the aliens. And I like that. I just find that inherently a really fascinating idea. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I guess, I guess the, the question, I mean, another, another just kind of offshoot is just the uh, level of description of this, you know, again, yeah. in, a, in a kind of young adult, uh, book, the, the way that the slavery within the city is described and the, uh, way that the, um, just the effects on Fritz are described yeah. are pretty horrific, even for me, kind of reading this as an adult. I was, I was definitely in that, like, oh God, I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not shying away from this. You know, to, to, I mean, it's not, it's not wallowing in it, but it's definitely not shying away from it. And, um, I can only imagine being like 11 years old and reading, you know, some of that stuff and just, and just like being horrified by it, you know? Yeah, it's very graphic. Um, I mean, you know, to contextualize it, well, okay, so there's everything I've just said about the slave trade. And oddly, that contextualization helped because when I read it, it was very similar to reading the descriptions of, you know, punishment whippings that I knew yeah. was an inherent part of plantation life. So if I, I can, if I can interject just before, so I, I, um, what it reminds me of is less the like, um, American, like uh, USian slave yeah. trade and more the way that these slaves in um, the African slaves in uh, sugar producing countries were treated. Um, okay. for instance in Haiti, because basically, um, the, the horror of the American slave trade was that it was chattel slavery. And so, yeah. um, they were actually kind of building an economic system on the natural increase of, um, human beings. <laughs> right. To right, build right, right, the, right, right. you know, what became the plantation system. Yep. And, um, Haiti and, uh, Brazil and, and some of those other places, what you were running into was the life of a sugar, <laughs> the, the, the life of a slave that worked on a sugar plantation was about a couple of years. Right. Um, because the work was so dangerous and so hard and it had to be done right yeah. away. And, um, especially when you talk about like the heat. Um, yeah. of the city and the way that the swamps are described and that sort of thing. I mean, they're, they're pushed into domestic servitude. Um, yeah. so they're not actually like mining sugar and that sort of thing. But I was very much on that, on okay. that wavelength when I was reading it. And that fits completely with the descriptions because you have the, in, in the city, you have the additional gravity, you have the additional heat, you have the additional humidity, all of which are combining to sap your strength all the time. And actually, from what you're saying, with the exception of the artificial gravity, that's that's Haiti, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, right, right? You're describing the the conditions on the ground at that period of time. Okay, so that I I mean I'll be very surprised if that wasn't deliberate. Yeah, and of way. course that led to the Haitian Revolution, which you know right. doesn't yeah. have any connection to anything in this book. But like at least no, it's no, that, no, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. one of the no, great moments of heroism in history was the Haitian sure. Revolution. So sure, sure, sure. No, that's, I, I mean, that, that's my own ignorance of that particular part of history that I didn't know about, but I, I'm, I mean, that, that reads correctly, and I'm sure, as I say, I would be amazed, given, given how, how much of the rest of it clearly rings true in terms of a slavery. As I say, it's not even an allegory, is it? It's, it's text, it's not subtext. Uh, I'm sure John Christopher would have been better read than me and would have, would have drawn that, would have known about that. So yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Yeah. 
Um, of course, he would have been perfectly fine with um, that revolution in particular, just because it was against the French. So, like, fuck the French. <laughs> <you know? laughs> if it had been an English colony, he would have been like, oh, well, those uppity Negroes. <laughs> yes. Sorry, I have, I have very little respect for John Christopher's politics, having read this series, and then having <laughs> talked to you about it. Like, it's, um, it sorry, that, very, that's me being It seems very likely we'd have, it seems very unlikely we'd have got along in a political conversation with John Christopher. Yeah, I think yeah, that's, so. that's fair, yeah i just i i found um just kind of wrapping up here i i found these books really fascinating um again i enjoyed the white mountains the best i am most interested in the city of lead and gold yeah that's probably the one i'd revisit first just as a um just to kind of see what i missed yeah um they're enjoyable they're 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 kind of fun reads um they have kind of big glaring flaws that we've kind of brought up but it was definitely yeah. not an unpleasant experience reading them and i'm uh, glad you enjoyed it that's um, good that's good to hear you know uh but uh don't read the prequel i've read 59 uh, yeah. percent of it because i that's how far i got before i realized i was reading the wrong book yeah. and uh, i I'll probably finish it just to see how, <laughs> um, but yeah, not, not, um, probably not worth your energy unless you just want to see how terrible these politics can get. So see, um, I, I read the synopsis on Wikipedia and I, I said, uh, and I just thought, I, I don't understand the point of view. There is no reason to do this. This is, you are like, because one of the great strengths, I think of the tripod strategy genuinely is that it's not about the fall. It's about after the fall. Right. It's about the resistance and it's about the revolution. And the fall has already happened. And I love, I mean, that's what I love is that disorienting. And I'm really enjoying rereading it with Scarlett at the moment. The disorienting first chapter and a half where you're just in this rural society that seems fairly idyllic, except there's this thing called capping, which doesn't really make any sense. And there's something called a tripod and you don't know what it is. I love the weirdness of that. I love the kind of, I love that feeling of on the surface, everything's fine. And then lurking just beneath it, there's all these really kind of these questions that are not asked, these subjects that are not discussed. You know what I mean? Right. And like, yeah. It, and, it's well, and, that's, and that's very like useful for an 11 year old, right? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, for the intended audience to, to like, yeah. you know, there are things that you don't know about the world yet that are yeah. completely uh, above your notice yeah but i mean it does i mean you know because will i mean you know particularly the third book uh, unfolds over the course of like what about five or six years something like that um, yeah 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 you know so uh you know by the end of the series will is you know kind of entering his adulthood he's you know 20 years old or something like that but mm. um certainly the first two you know he's kind of in that like 13 14 15 and yeah. i mean yeah, that yeah th- there is always when you like look at these kind of stories that kind of like birth of puberty as yeah. uh a a time of like becoming an adult and like understanding the world around you and that and that 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 central metaphor i think works here um, yeah. Oh, one one detail I I, did, I forgot to mention, and I'll just, you know where the um, th- there's a mention in um, Steel and Gold where the masters are like you know oh sometimes kids sometimes the humans in their like last year or two they start to like start to rebel and yeah. um, we don't really like that so we're thinking about like capping them earlier you know they don't live as long but you know yeah. and, it, and it, it'd be painful for them more, but they would be die, fine but, you know yeah you know whatever like yeah. Um, which is, which is just, again, one of those little details. It's just like how monstrous this system is, you know, that they're. What I love about that though is what's interesting about that is that reminds me of 
um, and this is this is topical for you and I. You know, you know, Jack Graham just posted that wonderful piece about um, uh, Starship Troopers pretending to be a, a right wing fascist from the future. Who what do you, what do you mean pretending? <laughs> Finally, unmasking himself <laughs> right. as a member of the alt right from the I'm, future. I'm just going to call him Eye Patch Graham Eye from patch, now on. Eye Patch Graham. <laughs> oh man, I hope he listens to this. Um, anyway, but like, but the fact that the the first comment that came from there was somebody who said, "Yeah, this is pretty much us. This is what we believe." You you have correctly identified us. Well, in that context, the moment where the master says. You know, remembering that this is the liberal master who is saying, oh, some of us are saying we should cap them at 10 or 11, even though that leads to greater problems and a greater higher mortality rate. But I don't believe that would be a good idea. Of course, from the master's perspective and the plan they're trying to put forward, they're dead right. They should be capping them earlier because the ones they aren't capping at 13 are escaping. They are fermenting rebellion and they are ultimately going to destroy them. Yeah, yeah. So they are being insufficiently ruthless. So I mean, liberalism, I mean, liberalism ultimately really does destroy the masters. It, they are it, it, insufficiently cruel they, to they, protect their own uh, homogeneity. Well, it's it's almost this sense, and uh, God, we're we're gonna get back into this. I was trying to wrap up, I'm but sorry. there is this there is this sense, and like, well, why not just kill them all now? Yeah, like, like it's. Yeah. A, I mean, you need a tiny breeding population for your for your slavery, and you, know, like, you can you can. You know, put that together. Like, why not just go out on your tripods and hunt them all down? I mean, yeah. they're, they're. I mean, it's absolutely portrayed as this sort of like benign imperialism, yeah, you know, sort of idea. And I don't know to what degree that's John Christopher like being cognizant of that, and to what degree that's just kind of like what he needs to have in place in order to kind of build this world that he story. wants to be in. Yeah. You know, because yeah. he wants to kind of. I mean, he wants this to be this kind of pleasant world. I mean, I, I think yeah. that that's kind of where. um where I kind of land is he, even though like these kids are near starvation for much of these books, and even though there is this kind of slavery happening and everything, I mean, I think that like John Christopher is kind of attracted to this, particularly in the white mountains. I mean, you really get a sense of like just how much fun it feels like, Oh, going on this adventure and eating all this food and seeing all these places. Like it, it feels like, Oh yeah, this is, this is, this is kind of a cool thing. Like it isn't portrayed as, Oh, and this is the dark fall of mankind. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's fun. Yeah. Um, which I think plays into some of the darkness in the later books, particularly right before the hunt, which we didn't talk about. Oh, but, um, man, I don't know. You want to you want to do the hunt real quick before we uh, wrap up? I well, I got a couple of other things that are on my list. So okay, go ahead, go that. ahead. No, no, we're good. Okay. We're good. Um, so uh, the first thing I wanted to say, and I mean, you've kind of touched on it already, but I, I I just kind of wanted to to bring it up explicitly in case there was anything else. The no, of course, one of the things that you could you could describe capping as as a metaphor for is uh, puberty, mm-hmm. because it happens at the age of thirteen or fourteen, and it's very very explicit. When Jack comes back down from the tripod, he says, "And Jack has now been capped after the feast." You know, he's given the choicest cut of beef, a, a flagon of ale. Tomorrow, he will do a man's work and earn a man's pay. Yep. It's explicitly the dividing line between childhood and adulthood. Well, right, and the reason that uh, Will can drink his beer in the in the German pub is because he's uh, he has to cap his on false cap. Yep. that's mm-hmm. right. Yep. So, so capping as puberty, then this may explain whether why there are no women in the resistance <laughs> because they're the fucking lost boys. <laughs> I love right? it. They're, I love it. They're all they're all Peter Pan. 
Well, of course, and, and women don't enter puberty and, like, have sexual desires and such. <laughs> yeah, because we're, we're back to Victorian values and women right. don't have sexual desires. Therefore, they're, they're kind of out. I mean, obviously, that's, you know, a woman gets capped in the story. That's the girl gets capped and that's the whole thing. So that's clearly not. <laughs> well, you know and the I mean? boys like, become slaves and the women, like, the pu- the, the pretty girls become, like, uh, bo- like uh, beautiful things well, that yeah, go into well, the boxes. You, you see, know? that's the other thing I wanted to talk about. We're right into it. So this is the other thing that really got to me. So... It's the, it's the pivotal moment in, in the city of letting go. Cause Will's getting to the point where he's almost kind of friends with his master. He's starting to get, he's starting to feel complicated about his relationship with his master because he understands that there's this political spectrum and his master is by master standards liberal. And he's exploiting that now because, uh, be, not because he's bright enough, but because Fritz has fucking sat him down and said, Hey, if your guy's taking it easy on you, that's brilliant. Fucking ask him questions about stuff. Let, you know, like, do it, because all I'm doing is getting the shit kicked out of me. I, mean, right. I can't learn anything at all. You know, I'm, I'm running away at every opportunity to explore the city and then getting beaten brainless when I get back. Can you please ask this guy some questions? <laughs> Yeah, Will's like, oh, that's yeah. Why why don't? Yeah, okay. I guess I can do that. I love Will's Um, responses, but if I ask him questions, he might be mean to me. He might get suspicious. (laughs) (laughs) And I think Fritz fully somehow manages to keep a straight face and say, "I fear that is a risk we shall have to take." (laughs) Like instead of just. Punching Will in the face, you know? <laughs> Which I'm you absolutely you. should punch Will in the face in that moment, yes. <laughs> you spoiled shit. Get the fuck out there and get on with it. Anyway, but, so the great sequence where he takes him to the, the hall of, and he sees all the kind of, you know, there's these preserved scenes of, like, idyllic countrysides and so forth. And you know where it's going. I mean, I'm sure that you immediately realised, as soon as they got to the first kind of, uh, moment of the museum, you knew what you were going to end up seeing at the end of the chapter. Right? Yeah, you knew yeah, it was yeah. going to build up to him finding Eloise. Yeah. I wasn't sure if he was going to find Eloise, but I, I kind of gathered, oh, this is what's happening. They're taking mm. out the pretty girls and putting them in boxes. I, I actually was surprised that they actually found Eloise. Okay, fair enough. But the thing that's interesting to me about that was what that says about about the masters and about the master's psychology. Because if the masters, and maybe this is just a failure of science fiction in general, or maybe it's a failure of John Christopher, or maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not of those things. Maybe you can help me with this. Why do the masters think that human women are beautiful? <laughs> because John Christopher is a sexist douchebag. It makes no, because if, when you look at the physical descriptions of the masters, they don't look anything like us. I mean, you know, we'll leave aside that every third word is grotesque and we'll just accept that's because Will is looking at something he doesn't understand and therefore it's right. gr- Okay, fine, whatever. Yes, you describe it as grotesque because you don't get it. That's fine. But, but just based, if you take the word grotesque out of the physical descriptions of the masters, they don't look anything like people. I'm not sure what they do look like, to be honest, but they do not look anything like humans. So why would they find the human female form so amazing that they want to collect human females and keep them in perfectly preserved beauty? And they even, they even rotate them in and out. Did you catch that? There's that thing about like, oh, you know, every now and then we get one that's even more beautiful. So we chuck what, like, like they've got a top 50 of the most beautiful women in the world that they just randomly find. How does this make any sense? 
I was just uh. saying, like, okay, so the notion that the, the, the aliens, that these creatures who physically resemble us not at all, oh. still find Earth human females really fascinating. And obviously, <laughs> obviously, the, the easiest explanation, as you said, was that, that John Christopher's a sexist douchebag. Well, I, I, th- I think it's, I think, it, I mean, that, that's me being a little bit flippant. I mean, I think yeah. it's, it's definitely meant to justify, um, kind of this righteous anger in Will and in the reader. That they're taking these, I mean, certainly Eloise, which is a character we we know, but yeah. it's certainly like, oh, all these innocent young girls and they're just being like, I mean, they're literally just being killed and then put into, you know, boxes and they're, they're just mm. corpses, you know. So I think there is that sense of, you know, because we, the reader, are supposed to find them beautiful, then the fact that um, the masters are, are killing them, it is supposed to like demonstrate the brutality of the masters. Mm. Um in universe, it doesn't make much sense, except in the sense that, like, if you kind of see, like, oh, they have all these, they have all kinds of beautiful things, and they have all kinds of, uh, like, what the masters find beautiful may be, you know, very different from ours, but they seem to find, I mean, they seem to find Earth, like, flora and fauna beautiful in the same way that we do. So I think it's kind of just a failure of imagination for John Christopher mm-hmm. to actually imagine the psychology of these masters, so... Yeah, that's oh. fair enough. I just the only other thing that occurred to me is that you could, if you wanted to get more sinister about it, you could. It, it reminded me, uh, it reminded me of of when we were talking on Oi Spaceman about uh, the Edwardian colonialism in India and that infamous line about <sighs> one learns to appreciate the was it the exotic? Is that the word he used? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, like, I wonder if I wonder if. John Christopher's maybe given away a little bit more here than he might be wanting to <laughs> about his own view. You know, I that that's entirely possible. Um, you know, I'll just one thing that, um, you know, particularly since the last episode was all about Stranger in a Strange Land, which is like mm. rife with sex. There's yeah. no sex in this book. There's no, no sex no, in any no. of these books. Um, Eloise I mean, is as near as it gets. Yeah, Eloise yeah. is and, as near as it gets. And that's more of a like, oh, I find her. I mean, that's that's an adolescent crush and a very yeah, like chaste one. I mean, yeah. one of the things that we, um, one of the things that we land on whenever we talk about kind of, uh, young adult stuff or, or stuff that's aimed at, um, people who are not adults, uh, in mm. general, is that, you know, if your main character is 13, it's really aimed at, like, 10 or 11 year olds. It's aimed at, like, yeah. kind of one group below. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I think that that's really essential in terms of kind of understanding, like, who this, I mean, this book is pitched at young boys who have not gone through puberty yet. Yeah. And so there's just, there's no, sex there's not even there's no real romance there's a little no. bit of a like flirtation with like the concept of it with eloise yeah. and really that's just to motivate this kind of like righteous chaste desire and will to like topple the masters you know, yeah. in a way so well yeah i mean it gives him that very important moment where he wobbles and it is an important moment you need to have that moral ambiguity you know that moment where it could it feels like for a second in the narrative he could go either way he could stay and be gay. and his friends think he's gonna i mean that i love i love the way henry and john paul go off and they're like well yeah yeah sure we'll see you in a couple of days will and <laughs> right. you know i love that i love the way they're smarter than him right and they're like yeah we're not yeah all right whatever will of course you're gonna come after us of course you are mate <laughs> well of course you're gonna be a shithead and pretend like you're or like think you're yeah. not gonna come with us you know yeah you've got a good life here you're you're about to yeah. go bang eloise you know like yeah <laughs> you're the one learning to ride a horse and becoming a knight and you're kind of like yeah i'm gonna be one of the landed gentry why not why not stay in this society i mean and and that's that's uh, you know in in the hands of another i mean it kind of works here yeah in terms of will's temptation yeah in the hands of someone who's more interested in it it could be about the temptations of the of being in the upper class and about this kind of class distinction um 
being drawn and, and ultimately, and, and I think that, you know, you know, I often kind of talk about these kind of works in terms of their politics because that's what I'm interested in. And, and I, John Christopher just isn't like, no. and, and the, the flaws in these books, I think come from his blind spots more so than something that yeah, he's actively. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. And I, what I was going to say, and for all that, for all that we've, you know, we've dinged him at length, uh, and especially, you know, and I've, I've kind of gotten, you know, very, uh, very voluble about it, you know, the, the, the lack of women about it. Ultimately, the reason that there's no women in this story, it's no more complicated than it's aimed at 11 year old boys. And right. John Christopher doesn't think 11 year old boys are interested in, in girls or women. And we can, we can deplore that both on, on fiction and ideological grounds, both. We can say, actually, even, even for 11 year old boys, it's possible to have interesting women characters and perhaps even desirable to have interesting women characters. No. Nah. But at least, no, no, I think we could go that far. Really oh, no, 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 it's, no. It's, what is Daniel, that? What is that? It's 2016, that's, Daniel. Get with the program. That's one of those <laughs> radical notions. Now, I think it's perfectly fine to have 11 year olds, to have, to have women in stories for 11 year old boys, but I think, you know, really, you keep them off to the side, you kind of keep them isolated, you know, you just have a chapter or two that has a girl in it, you know, and that's really all you need. You know, I that's mean, kind of my... Fucking C.S. Lewis has better gender representation than John Christopher. That's a terrifying sentence to say out loud. <laughs> right? There are two female characters in the Nine Dimensional Wardrobe and Prince Caspian who are central characters. They are appallingly genderly stereotyped and, like, I don't recognise them as functioning human beings, but there are actually two women. That's two more than are managed over this whole trilogy. That's depressing, considering how much later this was written. Fucking yeah. 67 this was written. Yeah. There were a few things going on in the world in 67 where you might have thought, oh, maybe I'll have a female character that's actually a female character and not a trophy. Yeah. Yeah, just maybe. Oh, I've got back on the run again, sir. No, it's fine. <laughs> Don't worry, we're good. Apparently, we're good. I hadn't finished digging John Christopher for not having any women in this fucking book. Apparently, I was still cross about it. As well, as well we should be. I mean, it's just, it, like, it's, at some point for me, it just kind of becomes like, yeah, it was, I almost didn't notice it after a while. It's like, of course yeah. this is a boy's book, you know? I read yeah, a bunch of these is... boy's books when I was a boy, but now I'm a man, and, you know, that, yeah. I've kind of moved on from it, so. And, and, and I could still enjoy the story, and, I, and that's the other side of it, isn't it? Like, it's, I still think it's a cracking narrative. I still think there's a lot of fun to be had with it, and there's some smart ideas, and I like, I like the alienness of the aliens. I love all the stuff that goes on the city that never makes any sense. I love the sphere chase, which might be a sport or might be a mating ritual in it. And I love the, the, the endless, like the garden pools and the, the stuff, that, the stuff that gets described in that second book where you're just like, what is that? And it's never explained because it's just alien. It's just weird. It's just yeah. what these guys do. That stuff is great. You know, that stuff is really, and feels like real, like, you know, that's the stuff as a kid where I felt like my imagination got really hooked into it, you know? Um, and I really admire that. I think that's good writing, you know? And, I, and it's that thing of like, it's, it's okay to, to criticize the hell out of the flaws of it and still enjoy it as a, for what it is, you know? And I'm hoping that, I mean, I'm really interested in seeing how this, this gender swap experiment with my daughter works out. Swapping Will out for for Sarah. We'll see if see how she gets on with the story. <laughs> well, can, I, I'm just kind of like, why why don't we switch out like Henry for Sarah? Like that would be a much more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted it to be the POV. Character. Oh no no no! I get it. I get it. I get yeah. it. But no, you're right. Henry, yeah, Henry would have worked as well. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, um, 
yeah, thanks for uh, coming on the show. Uh, did, did you have any more thoughts on this, or are we? Uh, I feel like we're kind of wrapping up. No, I think I think that's uh, I think we've I think we've covered most of the things I wanted to talk about. So no, that's pretty good. Um, I, I I think. I think if there's one thing I take out of this is I'm, I think you, you've converted me to being even more of a Jean Paul fan than I was maybe <laughs> when I, when I sat down at the start of the conversation. I think you've sold me on, uh, on Jean Paul as being like, uh, uh, like a genuinely heroic character. Oh yeah, that was what I wanted to talk about with Jean Paul City letting go. So after he bails Will out and then they go at the games, the other, the other pivotal moment, and it's the reason that Jean Paul doesn't feature in the rest of City of, of Lead and Gold is when he fails at the games. Right. And it's a really powerful moment because he fails at the, at the, it's a long jump, right? That's his sport. Mm-hmm. And he has this incredible conversation with Will afterwards. And Will's like, you know, and Will's like, oh, I'm just, you know, he's trying to sympathize with him. He's trying to make him feel better. And Jean Paul's like, no, I know I can jump better than that. I've jumped better than that in practice. I jumped better than that in the early rounds. I don't understand what happened there, but I'm really worried. Like, did I, did I really do my best? Did I really try? I, you know, and he, and he, and Will just doesn't kind of brushes it off, but then Will has his own crisis of confidence in his last boxing bout where he starts to lose the fight. And there's a moment when he's, he's in, he's, he's going into the last round and he's behind on points. He knows he's got to go for a knockout to win. I mean, all that's boy's own stuff, but his internal dialogue there, there's a moment where Will's like, am I doing what Jean Paul did? Am I, am I deliberately not trying my hardest because I really don't in my heart of hearts, I actually don't want to win. Because I don't want to go in the city. And like, if he hadn't had the conversation with Jean Paul, he might not have had the self-awareness necessary to come out as strong as he did in the last round and end up winning the fight and end up going in. And I think that that's a really, I mean, I'm glad Jean Paul didn't go in the city because I don't see him surviving in there. I don't see him getting out. So on a metafiction level, it, you know, on a writer level, I look at it and say, yeah, you can't send Jean Paul in. It's not a good idea. But, but I love how even by not going in, the way he fails to get in serves as a catalyst for Will. And I think that dynamic, that, that bit of their relationship where Jean Paul sits down with Will and expresses that deep seated doubt, that shame of like, I'm not sure, man. I think, I think maybe, maybe some part of me didn't want to win. Maybe some part of me didn't want to go in. And Will, that is the spark for Will in that last round of the boxing match. That's, that's good storytelling. That's good character work. You know, that's really yeah. compelling stuff. And it gives Jean Paul almost a much needed flaw because the other than that, he's pretty much flawless throughout, right? Yeah. I mean, his flaw is like, oh, I guess I get to live a little bit longer and like save the world later. Yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah like, <laughs> no, but the point is that even his moment, even the one moment of failure he has in the entire trilogy serves as the catalyst for will to succeed. Right. You know, right. Becomes exactly. the thing that motivates the your sensible hero of the piece. I think that's, that's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool bit of yeah. narrative. It's a pretty cool moment. You've you've got to think John Christopher is like aware of what a shithead he's writing Will as, and uh, I think that's yeah. I think that's the great. Um, I mean, if there is like one really big triumph of the book, I mean, we've spent a lot of time, or I've spent a lot of time, kind of uh, you know saying bad things about these about this series, but um, mm. I did enjoy them, and I think if there is one thing, it is um, you know, I think that Will's. Uh, dickishness is intentional and i think that it is actually really um effective it's effectively drawn here no i agree and for me like the smart thing and like 
again, it's something I didn't realise quite how smart it was until I tried to do it myself. And I haven't succeeded yet. It's something I took a crack at in an early fiction piece. I haven't done it. I haven't pulled it off yet. Is being able to write something from a, a first-person perspective narrative POV where you, the reader, understands more about the POV character than the POV character does. And even at 11, I figured out Will was a dick before Will did. Well, he's a really righteous dick. Well, I he mean, is. He, he's a really, really terrible dick. And I think that's the answer. If you want to portray your character as a dick, make him the dickish person you can possibly make him. And but even then, still, even, I don't, I don't know like, that I would have caught it at 11. Honestly, he, I, well, yeah, but that's the thing, isn't it? Cause he's a dick, but he's, he's still, he's also still human. He's superficially at least, uh, sympathetic. Right. And occasionally genuinely sympathetic. I mean, the Eloise situation, he clearly, like, I understand as a reader why that's a tough call for him, even as I know what the obviously morally right decision is long before he does. <laughs> right. And, and long before the kind of almost deus ex thing where it's forced on him, it's obvious what the right choice is. It's still, I still understand why it's a moral conundrum for him. I still understand why he feels torn in that moment you know right right because because i mean you know again from the point of view of that character like you know yeah. i mean you know why should i go live why should i continue on this journey which is I, i'm hungry all the time i'm cold yeah. all the time and all that stuff yeah. when i can live here and live this pretty good life and yeah. you know okay i'll be capped i love the tripods but you know hey i'll i'll be in charge it'll be cool you know and it's so, also yeah. like i'll live a good life and i'll be a good person right because the right. count and the countess they you know they're, they're they're doing charity work all the time they're delivering money to the poor they're you know they're all that kind of stuff oh, i'll be a good person you know oh, i'll help my fellow man or you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> no it's a, it's it's good and, and as i say it's kind of it, it's disappointing it, like i mean it works in terms of the story and it kicks the narrative on so i can't really complain but it, it it's disappointing that that for me just I like I, I I would love to see a version of that story where he doesn't have the easy out of Eloise going off with the tripods. I would love to see a version of that where he has to find some other way through that moral dilemma to find the the right choice. But then I don't know. There's an echo of that with a steal the boat, I guess, and that he looks at the face of the guy and it's like, okay, I've really really hurt somebody. I've hurt somebody who had done nothing wrong and is blameless uh, and didn't deserve to be hurt. And I've done it in the service of what I consider to be the greater good. Yeah, no, I, I mean yeah, that is that is an interesting connection between the the hermit and the uh, and Eloise. Yeah. Um, yeah, really. I mean, um, you know, I'll be honest. You know, kind of reading through it, the you know, kind of when I first started, I'm kind of like, yeah, this is uh, it's interesting a little bit. You know, mm -hmm. it's kind of this genre it kind of kind of works for what it is um yep. chatting with you about it is is kind of like l allowing me to see it through your eyes definitely kind of makes you go oh, okay now I, I see kind of some of the some of the depths that uh like why <laughs> this was a children why wh like why this was worth like talking about not that it not that i didn't think it was worth talking about yeah. just on a like um personal level but like on a literary level i kind of I, I get it um a lot more now that i've kind of seen it through your eyes and that's cool. uh that's that's the joy of talking about a uh, a good book with people you know so oh well thank you man no yeah. and thanks for thanks for indulging me i mean as i said i i i knew that it was uh i don't even know if it makes it on the minor canon list i know it's not a major in any way a kind of major work in terms of science fiction probably not even in terms of ya science fiction but yeah i mean i i think certainly 
first encountering it at 11 and having reread it a few times in between certainly helps um, because you develop a relationship with a book you read that many times. Yeah. And it was, it was fun to come back to it this time. And, and as, as we've discussed at length, find some gaping flaws, but still, still find something I'm happy to be reading to my daughter. And that's great. You know, um, <laughs> just, just skip over the bit where they burned the entire Southern hemisphere to the ground. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I, I don't think skip over it. I think I think it's something to talk about. I think well, that's fair. Yeah, I, uh, I don't I don't know. You know, uh, I I agree with that. You know, it's it's worth talking about these things. And uh, you know, in like ten years, I give her this podcast episode. And uh, we'll <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, Kit, tell people where they can find you on the internet if they're so inclined to do so. Okay, um, you can find me on Twitter at Kit Gonzo. You can find me on Facebook. I am Kit Power. Um, if you're interested in my podcast, uh, it's Watching Robocop with Kit Power. Daniel Harper has already been a guest and his episode is live, as is James Murphy's. And I have a ton of other fascinating and interesting people lined up. That's a podcast where I watch the movie Robocop with a friend and record the resulting conversation. Uh, and it's exactly what you'd expect as a result of that. So, uh, that's on Libsyn. Uh, if you just search for, um, watching Robocop with Kit Power, I'm sure you'll find it. You know how to work the internet. Get on Google and find it. <laughs> I'll um, include a link. It's good. Don't worry. Yeah. And, uh, and if you're interested in my blogging, I blog at gingernutsahorror.com forward slash my life in horror, where every month I talk about, uh, some formative childhood experience with horror and how it warped my young mind and informed my adult decision-making in interesting ways. Tripods will be a future entry in that as a result of this conversation, but probably not for a few months, but there's plenty of other stuff in there you can read. Um, there's about, it's getting on for three years worth of essays at this point. And my, if you're interested in my fiction, I have a novel and a novella collection and short stories that have appeared in various anthologies. And you can find all of them through my Amazon author page. That's the easiest thing to go to do. Go to Amazon. Please change your search from all to books before you search for Kit Power. Otherwise, all you'll get is loads of ways to charge your mobile phone from your car, uh, which won't help you at all. But yeah, Kit Power under books, and there, there you'll find all of everything I've everything I've got in print and indeed uh, digitally as well. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks a lot for coming on, and um, until next time. Uh... Cheers. I don't know. I don't really uh, have a final thing for this podcast, the, so I don't know. The ray gun is now closed. No, that doesn't. I don't know. Um, yeah, it doesn't really. You know. <laughs> um, uh, Bye. The cities have been destroyed. Death yeah. to the tripods! There we go. <laughs> I'll hail the tripod. <laughs> <laughs>